Okay, and we're live. The man behind the cookbooks. Let's introduce Kurma Prabhu. Hi, Bol Kurma Prabhu. Thank you for joining me. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Oh, this is this is episode, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is episode uh, forty-three of the late morning program with Namras Podcast. I'm here with Kurma Prabhu. Kurma Prabhu is the uh, worldwide renowned uh, ISKCON chef. He has this amazing cookbooks uh, here that I that I grew up reading and looking at the pictures as I was mentioning to him earlier. And I'm just so uh, honored to have you, Prabhu, on the show. Well, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you very much for um, giving, giving me your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we want to hear a lot about the man behind the recipes. Everyone knows your recipes. Everyone knows, uh, you know, the cookbooks and everything like that. But we want to know a little bit more about your life. So let's just start out. Um, tell us a little bit about your early life. Well, um, I was I was fascinated with food um, from a very early age. I, I had what's known as a oral fixation. <laughs> um, it's called anamaya, or dependence upon foodstuffs for one's existence. And right. I, I had, I had a, a bad case of it. Um, <laughs> I always used to enjoy my food. I remember my, my mother, uh, she reminded me that when I was a very young lad, from, from when, must have been from three or four years old or maybe even earlier, um, the mantra that she would always say is, um, slow down, son, no one's <laughs> going to take it away from you. <laughs> and that, was, that, that seemed to be the way my life went. I was very much, I, I enjoyed eating. It was a big part of my life. Right. And uh, I was born in a... Um, a Jewish family in, in Essex in England, 1952. I was actually born on a codicy. I was born on Gita Jayanti, actually. Wow. And um, so my first day I spent fasting, and then I tried to make up for it for the rest of my life. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, and um, so I was born in Essex, and I um, grew up with a very a very happy childhood i was born in the beginning of my my venus period if you if you have if you're born in in your astrological venus period it means you have a very 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 happy time so that mm -hmm. first 16 years of my life was 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 spent um enjoying enjoying my youth um i um actually when i was born i was born breech birth mid forceps my, so my mother tells me <laughs> which means I basically came out bum first. Oh, right. And uh, I think what happened was I turned around. I thought, oh, no, not another life. I, I changed my mind and I thought I'd just fall <laughs> back in. I realized I'd made a, a, a terrible mistake. But uh, so anyway, so they had to pull me out with, with forceps. and uh, and um, But anyway, I, I survived the ordeal. Wow. And, and then, uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, carry on. Uh, so 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 when was the first time you kind of like met devotees oh well that was quite a bit later right that was quite a bit later but um i spent my youth um uh you know searching for spiritual things i had a lot of mystical things happen to me when i was young and i started veering towards um india and the culture and the philosophy of india gradually gradually which is a, a long story 
but I, um, by the time I reached 17, I actually met the devotees. Can you tell us a little bit about the mystical, like you said, some mystical experiences? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I look back at this. At, at the time, I, I didn't think it was very significant. But then when I look back at it, one day I was thinking, hey, I think I can understand what was going on. I used to walk to school. In those days, no one drove to school or got a bus to school because everyone was into walking. And right. it was safe. So I, I was about a mile or two from the school, but I would walk to school from the age of six or seven. And every day when I walked to school, um, and especially when, when I walked home from school, I would have this sort of realization that there was somebody or something inside me watching what I was doing. Mm. And it appeared to me like a, like a TV screen with a, with a test pattern on it. I couldn't see who or what was there. But in my mind's eye, there was, a, there was a TV and there was some person or being who was observing my activities. And on the way home from school every day, I would relate all the things that had happened to me during the day. It became like a, a regular thing. I would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, Billy Lovelock punched me in the face today. <laughs> and, uh, and I fell over in the schoolyard and grazed my knee. Right. And I used to just relate all these things in a very innocent way to this person or personality, although I didn't conceive that this was God or anything like that. But when I look back, I, I realized there was there was perhaps something coming, something coming from some sort of previous life. Mm. Um, that's the only way I can I can describe it. And when I used to fall asleep at night, and I, I used to think this happened to everybody, but I found out that it, apparently it didn't. As I was falling asleep at night, I would uh, I would have an out of body experience, and I would find my, I, I would separate from my body. And I would float above my bed and I would float around the room and look down and, and feel wow. very wonderful experience. And then all of a sudden, after two or three minutes, I would just feel this sort of like jolt and I'd be back inside my body. And um, I just thought it was sort of what, what you did when you were a mm. kid. But then I, I found out that it was perhaps something not everyone experienced. But it was, it was an interesting, uh, it, there were interesting things like that that happened to me. So then you said you met the devotees at, you were 17? Yeah, well, what happened was, um, it, that's also a long story, but my parents actually met the devotees before I did. Wow. My father was coming home from work one day, and um, something yellow caught his eye, and he was he was leaving the, the uh, Wynyard Station in Sydney, downtown Sydney, in the middle of the central business district. And there was this devotee with a with bright yellow kuratan, bright yellow dhoti, and a beautiful yellow turban. And that was Upendra. Oh. And Upendra had come to Australia on the orders of Srila Prabhupada along with Bali Mardan, two devotees, one from the East Coast, one from the West Coast. They never knew each other, but they met up in Australia. Uh -huh. uh, fascinating story how Upendra got to be there. He got to be there sort of by accident, but this was Krishna's arrangement. And he started going out into the street every day with Bali Mardan. One of them would play the drum and sing, and the other one would distribute back to Godheads, and then they would swap. And this this was 1970. I was in my last year, second last year of school, and um, my dad came home from work and he said, "Look, I met this guy today, and he said that he stopped me in the street and he handed me this leaflet because they'd run out of back to Godheads and all they had was a single sheet. It was what is the Sankirtan movement, and it was only, mm. only one sided piece of paper. Right. And um, he held he held it out to my dad. Pendra held it out to my dad." 
My dad held onto the piece of paper and was about to keep walking, but then Upendra tugged on it. This is one of our notorious uh, literature um, techniques in the old days <laughs> right, to get right. people to stop. Um, and then my dad would be pulling on one side and Upendra was pulling, and then my dad was finally stopped. And Upendra said, could you spare a, a couple of bob for, for this? A um, couple of bob means like 20 cents in Australian slang. Um, and my father was shocked. He said, like, two bob for a piece of paper my dad had this what was called um long pockets and short arms <laughs> as it as is described um so anyway he very reluctantly gave upendra 20 cents and he was a bit embarrassed by it all and he came home and he said like i've just got this thing on the street don't know what it is this funny looking guy gave it to me and he gave it to me and I was fascinated. I, I, I'd never seen anything like it. And I kept it. I actually kept it and stuck it up on my wall when I was doing my homework. And I couldn't figure out what this was exactly. But it seemed to be very attractive to me. And, and then, not long afterwards, my mother, who was working in an Indian handicrafts boutique in an exclusive Sydney suburb of Double Bay, and uh, there was this lady called um, Jyoti Ray, who was a Bengali... Uh, Indian artifacts importer. So my mother was working behind the counter and one day this another devotee, uh, she met uh, Upananda who was the first um, devotee to join the temple. He, he was the third devotee to appear on the scene in Australia after Upendra and Bali Madan and he came in asking for uh, some, wanting to buy some vases for the temple that they had just opened. Oh my gosh. So she sold them these vases and she came home from work and I'd just come home from school and I was raiding the cupboard looking for chocolate. And she said to me, I met a monk today. And, I, and I'd been reading some books about Tibetan Buddhism. And I said, oh, you met a monk? I said, was he Tibetan? And she, and she said, no, he was from California. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, what? And uh, that also didn't, didn't, quite makes sense and then and a short time afterwards i belonged to this jewish youth group called habonim and and we all we all used to hang out hang out together and i was very shy and reticent and my friend said you need to you need to meet people you know because i used to hang around the house listening to indian classical music and burning incense and mm. I, I i bought a kurta a pink kurta i was very attractive to attracted to kurtas. So I used to sit around the house wearing a kurta, burning <laughs> and listening to Indian classical music. And they said, you've got to get out, you've got to meet some people, get a life. Right, right. They, can, they, they talked me into going along to this, this youth, regular youth club on a Saturday. It took me weeks and weeks to finally get there. I got on the bus and when I got there, little did I know that they'd moved venues and they weren't going to be meeting at this, at this place anymore. So I walked in the, the building, it was all deserted walked to the room that they told me that where the meeting was going to be and there was nothing in the room at all nothing whatever was there had moved was moved out except right in the middle of the floor was the number 36 edition of back to godhead magazine brand new wow. sitting on the floor so i walked in looked around no one there picked it up brought it home and that was my first back to godhead magazine and in the magazine there were pictures of devotees in new york doing sankirtan right. um beautiful pictures and I and I I thought oh well maybe this is maybe these are the monks and and it all sort of started to come come together and then a friend of mine called Mark my school friend uh, best friend at school he said I went to a, a temple today would you like to come along with me he met the devotees and 
he invited me to come along to the first, uh, well, it wasn't the first, but they'd moved to this new temple mm. in Oxford Street in Paddington, a trendy sort of suburb. And by then there was about seven or eight devotees um, living in the temple, maybe nine actually. And by then, Churu and Vaibhavi, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, of course, yeah. There's a whole backstory to course, and this is all narrated in my book, The Great Transcendental Adventure. Right, right. Um, and they'd, they'd moved in the temple, and um, Churu was, um, and, his, and his wife were, were doing very active preaching. And I went to the temple, and Churu was giving an evening Bhagavad Gita class. And I walked in, and, and all I can remember was that he was talking about something about three-legged chairs in the street. At least I, that's what I thought it was. He was talking about a stools in the street. <laughs> he was telling me how dogs, and he was he was very graphic in his presentation. So, But I was imagining that he was talking about three-legged chairs. I'd never heard the word stools before. <laughs> anyway, I didn't understand much what he was talking about. But afterwards, Vaibhavi served out to all the guests hot banana milk with nutmeg and slices of orange and slices of figs that had been in the refrigerator and they were very nice and chilled. So our wow, first prasadam wow. was was figs and oranges and hot milk. So that was my first prasadam and uh, I was hooked. Mm. And that what, night what? She, she sold me a nectar of devotion, which I brought home and uh, I read it cover to cover, although I didn't understand much, understand much of it, but I presume I became somewhat purified. And she did tell me that night that, you know, you can make your, this, this is called prasadam, and it's sacred food, and you can make your own sacred food at home. And I said, well, how, how do I do that? She said, well, you just make some food or some get some fruit, and you put it in front of a picture of Krishna, and you ask him to accept it. I said, oh, I can do that. So I got my Back to Godhead magazine that I had in my room, and I propped it up against the wall, and I thought, oh, I'll make an experiment. So I went and went into the kitchen and juiced four or five nice big oranges. And I juiced them and put them in a glass. And I brought the glass into my office and put it in front of the Back to Godhead magazine and said, here you go, Krishna, this is a glass of orange juice for you. And I left the room. Somehow or other, I knew that I should leave the room while the offering was going on. I don't know how I figured that out. <laughs> but then I, I came back later, 10 minutes later, and I said, okay, I'm going to drink this orange juice now. And I drank it. And the taste was spectacular. I'd never experienced anything like it. It was like orange juice from heaven. Wow. wow. So that was, uh, and anyway, lots of little things like that happened to me. And, you know, my, the happiest time of my life, of course, was coming to Krishna consciousness. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, Prabhupada was scheduled to arrive in Australia, which was quite a surprise for us all. And um, what happened was that April, the, I, I was coming along to the temple regularly and then it was time for me to go to university. I'd left school, my final exams. I'd failed miserably, but somehow or other I was, um, I got into university. I, I got, bought my textbooks and I, I enrolled in an economics course, but I wasn't really into it. I was losing my taste. I, I thought, what is, what's the point of all this? And, and, uh, and then I said to my mum and dad, look, I'm going to leave university. I, I'm just really, I don't think I can do this. And they said, no, you should. You shouldn't. You should stick it out. It's important. I said, no, I can't do it. They said, well, okay, well, and I said, look, I want to go and be with the devotees. And they said, well, why don't you just get a job somewhere and visit the devotees, you know, on the weekends or something like that. They were trying to negotiate with me. So I went and looked for a job, came back. 
I couldn't get a job that day. I thought, I've had enough. I want to move in the temple. So they very kindly on April the 14th, 1971, the reason it was a Wednesday, the reason I can remember it's a Wednesday is because I'm looking at my calendar here and, <laughs> and 1971 and 2021 have the same same calendar. Oh. So it, it was a Wednesday. And uh, I packed a little suitcase and they drove me to the temple. My mother was crying. They they dropped me off and that was it. And I, I, I moved in the temple. And I was I had this overwhelming desire to go and be with the devotees right it felt like there was nothing else for me to do except move into the temple which i did wow and then three weeks later Prabhupada came amazing that yeah i, I want to touch on your book a little bit later but describe mm. describe your first experience uh at a kit in an iskon kitchen like when you moved into the temple was it immediately like you were attracted to like okay i gotta go into the kitchen and and like serve as there no not straight away not okay. straight away the first temple, the kitchen was in the basement, and it was not a very attractive. Although I must say, this is an interesting uh, memory that I have that I'd forgotten about until you just asked me then. But I was going to school at the time. Uh, this was the end of 1970. As I was visiting the temple, I get on a bus and I go to the temple. And one night when I went to the temple, uh, Upananda was in the kitchen cooking gulab jamuns mm. for the Sunday feast. So I was in my school uniform and stuff, but, you know, I don't think our Suchi standards were much in those days. <laughs> and so he said, would you like to come and help me in the kitchen? So I did, and I was rolling the, the gulab jamun dough into balls, and he was frying them in ghee. Ooh. And it went for hours and hours and hours. But he was telling me all about Krishna consciousness and preaching to me, and it was, you know, I, was I was really enjoying it. So actually that was my first experience in the kitchen, although... Mm. I didn't officially go into the kitchen for about another year later when after I got my initiation, second initiation. Oh, wow. But that, but that was uh, that day in the kitchen with the Gulab Jamans was it, it was impressive. Right, right. So, okay, so you went in there a year later and then was it like, how did it start as as far as like your serving? Were just like cutting up stuff or were you like actually well, going washing, in there? And I was washing pots. To start washing there. pots, right, right. That's that was the routine. First of all, you have to get your, you have to get your um, qualifications. You know, yes. first of all, you have to get a bit, a bit wet and soapy before you can enter the kitchen. So, <laughs> I was washing pots, and in those days, you know, the temple prasadam was very, very austere, uh, extremely yeah. austere. I mean, I'd become a vegetarian when I was sixteen when I was still going to school, and my mother was cooking for me at home. Oh wow! Uh, vegetarian food, which is very, she would cook like. One meal for everyone else and one meal for me. And so, I mean, she was amazing. Um, when I moved in the temple, though, the prasad was very austere. The breakfast was farina, or was as semolina as we call, call it in Australia. Right. Boiled, boiled in water because we couldn't afford milk mm. and um, loaded with sugar. And if we really wanted to jazz it up, they would, they would grate some orange peel in it for some <laughs> special flavor. And that was breakfast. And the maha prasadam was simply wonderfuls right and there would be like after most of the simply wonderfuls had been stolen there was usually one or two left at breakfast time and then they would they would bring the simply wonderfuls around and take like one twentieth of a simply wonderful and drop it in, in your bowl of <laughs> cereal and you had to you had to grab it before it melted and uh, it was very austere and lunch was just um, you know like some vegetables and some burnt or overcooked hard bread, mm. sort of like um, 
dining in the gulag or something, but it was it was very it was very austere. So I had this this desire came in my heart that I've got to I've got to get more to eat. So I thought if I want to actually get more food, I'm going to have to work in the kitchen because that seems like that's the place where all the action is. And right. I, not a very noble, not a very noble reason, <laughs> but I was I, I was a very hungry teenage boy at this time, and yeah. um, the Temple Prasadam was for for some time for the one or two years until book distribution hit, and then everything became very opulent. Um, but until then, the Prasadam was very austere. So I found that I, if I could work in the kitchen, I'd be able to sort of like be very close to the the Mahaprasadam and. Uh, and I'd, I'd, I'd become very expert at stealing the Mahaprasadam. Mm. And then, so, so then you, as you started with p washing pots and then your like training began basically in, in the kitchen. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember all the details, but I know I used to cook Krishna's lunch and I used to make up stuff because we didn't have any recipes in those days. There were no recipe books, even the original um, Hare Krishna cookbook that was the Kirtan and Swami had put together. Um, Somehow or other, we didn't have that. And um, there were, in those early days, no recipes. So I just sort of made it up. I, I remember yeah. it wasn't wasn't too bad, but uh, I made it up as I went along. But then um, as time went on, there were devotees that, uh, well, actually, I, this was in Sydney, and I, I didn't used to get along very well with one devotee or who, whose name I won't mention. And he used to sort of tease me and bully me, and we had a very uh, not a very pleasant relationship. <laughs> So one day I thought I was, we were on Sankatan and I sat down to play the harmonium. I only knew one tune and I was going to lead the kirtan. And suddenly he came along and took the harmonium from in front of me, sat, put it down in front of him and started leading the kirtan. And, and that was, that was the straw that broke the Korma's back. So I, <laughs> I, I got on a bus and I went back to the temple while everyone was out on Harinam. I packed my bag and I left the temple. Oh my God. I just thought that's it. And I was in my doji and my kurta in my, in my flip-flops. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to Melbourne Temple. And I didn't know where Melbourne Temple was. Mm. But I thought, I, I heard that it was in St. Kilda, the suburb of St. Kilda. So I hitchhiked all the way. It was like 800 miles. And uh, slept on the side of the road in the middle of the night in, in the freezing cold. And I finally arrived the next day or two at the uh, Melbourne Temple. And when I arrived, Mohanananda was the uh, was there as the GBC. Yeah. And Mohanananda said, hey, Cormo, he said, uh, we need a temple commander. Would you like to be a temple commander? And I said, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> so I became the temple commander. And, um, and then life went on in Melbourne. And in Melbourne at the time, there was a devotee called Deepak. And... Uh, Deepak uh, actually had been in Sydney, but then he came to Melbourne. No, actually, no, at this stage, just Melbourne, I think. Deepak had been trained in Los Angeles how to cook, and he was a very good cook. And there was another devotee called Chitraleka, who was the, married to Upendra. Mm. And uh, Prabhupada and uh, Yamuna, actually, Yamuna and all those original ladies that were in India with Srila Prabhupada and Yamuna, uh, Chitraleka was also there, and so she was trained out to how to, be, how to become a first-class cook, and her specialty was cooking milk sweets. Right. So between Chitraleka Devidasi and uh, Deepak Prabhu, I learned how to cook, and especially I learned how to cook uh, nice milk sweets, and um, uh, we used to offer them to the deities in the morning. So I started to get training. Uh, otherwise, up until that point, I was just sort of making it up as I went along. 
your training was in Melbourne. Well, well Melbourne and Sydney, because you see, in those days, we sort of I went backwards and forwards. Oh, um, you did? Okay. The two temples. They were the only two temples, and between the two, I uh, I started to get a, a taste for being in the kitchen, and then I then I started cooking Sunday feasts. Big quantities. Uh, yeah. Well, we were getting fifty or so people at that time. Right. Right. But as the years went by, the numbers increased to 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 in the. The eighties, when in, in the Melbourne Temple, we were getting seven hundred people um, for a Sunday feast, and so the oh quantities were, started to get big. But the Sunday feasts in those days were very different. You know, the Sunday feasts were like ten or twelve special dishes, mm-hmm. not like some temple Sunday feasts that I've been to um, since then, where they make like kitchri and papadums or something. <laughs> uh, but really, they were seriously good, and this was the standard. You, 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 you wouldn't, you wouldn't, or you couldn't um, get away with cooking anything less than than two or three subjis, you know, two savouries, uh, one or two chutneys, a salad, three sweets, one or two drinks, and you'd start cooking the day before. And these were like first class preps, and I, that became my thing to, to cook nice Sunday feasts. Opulent. We would go through in the heyday of my Sunday feast cooking. We would go through three or four ten kilo buckets of ghee. Oh my goodness! Which is thirty or forty kilos of ghee. Uh, you can translate it into pounds. But it was it was very opulent, very opulent. Everything was, in ghee. Yeah, every, and we, there was no question of cooking in oil. That was like something that that we, we didn't even dream of. You you, mm. you, you fried something you fried spices or you deep fried you cook it in ghee cooking in oil is something which has come in the last you know few decades and it's most unfortunate but um that is uh, that's how we did it right right i mean you know some devotees say some devotees say like okay ghee you know there's the expense part as well as the health part of it perhaps like what do you think when people say that like you you have seen the the from from before like how it was 10 12 preps and then you said you know it, it, papa dumps and kitri like how does that make you feel how does that make you feel like it's disappointing of course but like yeah well you see i'm gonna vow that i would share all my sunday feast recipes after i started to realize that um because when, when i went to america to record um when i went to america to record my interviews Okay. Prabhupada in Australia book. I met up with uh, with a Purava. Oh, okay. Yes. And he was telling me that he was planning to do a big cookbook. In other words, a cookbook with recipes in for uh, 150, 200 people. In other words, Sunday feast cookbooks. And he was going to share it with people. This was 30 something years ago. Right. And he, he's still working on it. And it's, I, it's taking a very long time. You see, the mm. problem is with, with with making a cookbook like that, is that you have to test the recipes. But you have to test a, a, a recipe for three hundred people. So you can't just go into the kitchen and whip up a test recipe. You have to cook it <laughs> in conjunction with a big event. Right. Of course. And, and someone has to finance that. You know, who's going to pay for for a huge amount of money to cook all these recipes? It has to be obviously when there's a Sunday feast on or something like that. Mm. And so, um, you know, it, there's been difficulties. I've, I'm still working on my Big Cook's cookbook. I've got 300 to 400 recipes there. Um, f- I basically wrote down everything that I cooked for my Sunday feast for 15 years. 
and all the quantities. It's in Australian quantities, but it can be easily uh, adjusted. But I haven't been able to find a way of turning them into, you know, double-checked recipes that have to be tested at least once, like I right. did with all my cookbooks. All the recipes in my other cookbooks, of course, they work very well because I tested them very, very religiously. Mm. And uh, that's therefore devotees say to me, hey, they really work. And I said, well, I mean, yeah. they've got to work. What's the point of what's the point of a cookbook if the recipes don't work? Right. So I was I'm a bit obsessive. And so I made sure that everything was tested once or twice. But it's very difficult to do that with big quantities. So my my determination is to somehow before I, I leave this mortal coil is to <laughs> have a book in case in the future that there's some sort of revival and Sunday feast return to their golden days, that there'll be recipes ready to go. Mm. So, you know, I've been communicating with Apurva, but somehow or other it's very slow. And now, of course, with the world situation, you know, that you, it's um, everything's on hold. Yeah, yeah. Do you know any temples in, in your area or anywhere else in the world where they still are doing like algae and many more than seven there perhaps? Are. There, there are. are. Well, I don't know about all ghee, but I, I'm just thinking because uh, I've, I've done a load of, of traveling around for my cooking classes. And um, and I do recall attending Sunday feasts that were really first class. Um, mm. I'm just thinking, for instance, in Almovik's Gård in the Swedish farm. Okay. Uh, very, very nice prasadam. And there, there must be other places. I, I'm just trying to recall if, I, if, if the places pop into my mind. Yeah. I'll let you know there are some people there are some devotees out there that really know that it was Prabhupada's desire that the Sunday feast be very spectacular not just right. middling but spectacular and that the people came to the Sunday feast and literally people would they would not go home after the Sunday feast they would say I'm moving in if, mm. if you eat food like this then I'm not going home and, and people would be coming by the dozens and this was you know, you read those uh, recollections by the early devotees and how important the Sunday feast was. Mm. And everybody, all the devotees would be there and they would, and they would, every devotee would sit down next to a guest and while they were taking prasadam and they would talk to them and make friends with them. And mm. Another um, thing, another thing is the serving out, isn't it as well? Like nowadays I see that it's, it's like, there's you put the serving things you know next to each other on a table and everyone queues up or lines up and then but but in your time in the older times it was like everyone sit down in a line and so everyone gets served out very nicely. With I think that's changed as well. Like Prabhupada did. did it like that. He sat right. everyone down at, at 26 Second Avenue. He would walk in those very early days when he would actually cook the feast himself. He would serve it out and he, yeah. people would see. There's their plate, and they would ask, which, you know, Prabhupada would be serving it out. He would say, would you like the, the white rice or would you like the pushpana rice? And he'd give them a choice. <laughs> you don't just make one rice for the Sunday feast. You make like a fancy rice with paneer cheese balls. And, and then there's a buttered white rice, and he would give you, would you like, or someone, some devotees would say, oh, I'll take the yellow rice. I'll take the white rice. And Prabhupada would, would be putting it on your plate, and, and then he would say, eat more, eat more, and then he would come back and come back. Um, so, you know, we, that was the only way that we knew how to serve Prasadam, everyone sat in rows. And then right. for various reasons, um, um, not the least of which is the fact that if you've got like 500 people, there isn't enough place for 500 people to sit down. 
Right, right. Um, that's one of the reasons why we had to start putting it onto tables and serving it out. Because, in, for instance, in Melbourne Temple, people got their prashadam and then they went down and they sat in the garden, they sat in the courtyard, they sat wherever they could find a place because there wasn't enough room in the prashadam room. Right. Um, but in those early days, everything was very intimate. And yet we always sat down and, and prashadam was served very beautifully. And I mean, of course, we, you know, we were, we were neophytes and sometimes we were, we, we weren't that in, enthusiastic to do the serving we would rather be eating but you know at least at least we were, we were on our way to to doing it properly but but yes so there's a many there's many things about sunday feast which are which are a disappointment mm. including, including, there's many disappointments in to older Prabhupada's disciples when it comes yes. to stardom. yeah yeah i i hope there i hope there is a time where where that comes back because i feel like people i mean you hear so many stories of people joining Krishna consciousness just because, like you said, people wouldn't leave. Like they joined because they were so attracted to what they were eating. They were like, they had a huge plate of halava and they just ate it and they were like, I want to shave up and join, you know? Exactly. That's exactly how it was. I remember that that that, that happening in, in Australia. People they were just like completely um intoxicated with Prasadam. Mm, mm, mm. So yeah, well I'm thinking, you know, if some of us Prabhupada disciples Perhaps you know we have to take birth again next life in Iskon and come back and continue the process. <laughs> if, if no one else is going to do it, we might have to come back and do it ourselves. Right. Uh, having said that, you know there are some very serious um, boys and girls who have already taken birth in Iskon who probably all were already proper disciples in a previous life, mm. and and you know. They all look like so many of them look like they've just come from the spiritual world. They're very special souls, and perhaps yeah. they have some a few years, you know, or a one lifetime left to finish up and perfect their devotional service. But there's some very, very serious young boys and girls, and perhaps you know they'll take up the the gauntlet. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so then, so then, let talk us talk a, a little bit about. Uh, so you were in the kitchen fifteen years cooking Sunday feasts, and then then tell us what happened after that. Well, that was now. Now we we've, we've gone forward to to um, seventy five, nineteen seventy five to nineteen ninety. Okay. Now nineteen seventy five to nineteen ninety, I was in Melbourne Temple. I was actually in Sydney Temple, but then Prabhupada was visiting Australia. Mm. I, I took initiation from Prabhupada in that first year, 1971. I got my second initiation, 1972. Then I went into the kitchen and I started, you know, doing serious cooking. In fact, in those days, you'd cook three or four offerings a day. And if devotees went to Rathayatra or something like that, you'd stay, be someone would have to stay behind. And it was usually me. And you would uh, wake up the deities in the morning, do the Mongolati offering, the arti, the, and then offer Krishna's breakfast, lunch, evening. And, and there were six offerings and artis a day. Dress the deities in the morning, dress the deities in the evening. And anyway, I was doing that in Sydney. And it was Prabhupada's now fifth visit to Australia, 1975. We all got on in, in, uh, in that particular year. I didn't stay behind. Mm. I went to the opening of the Melbourne Temple, which is the Melbourne Temple, which is still there now, Radha Vallabha. Baba called it Melbourne Mahaprabhu Mandir, just a spectacular temple. I love that temple, and, uh, beautiful. Have you been to Melbourne Temple? Yeah, yeah, I went in 2015 uh, right. after you, you met Tulsi in, in Hong oh, Kong. Yeah. We went there, oh, beautiful temple, amazing I history, I, I loved it. Yeah, it's spectacular. So I, I spent 25 years in Melbourne Temple. That was my 
and wow. and I would have stayed there for the rest of my life, but circumstances changed as they do. Anyway, Madhur Visa, who is the GBC, he he rang me up and he said, I'd been to the opening of the temple and then I'd returned back to Sydney and I was doing my deity worship service. And um, Madhur Visa said, look, we need a head pujari. There was one devotee called Dwipayana who's here on Facebook, very nice devotee, spectacular cook. Um, he's from my era and he's in the same mindset as myself. Uh, his Sunday feasts were spectacular. He was going to go somewhere else, I think, to Fiji or somewhere to do some preaching. Can't remember where. Madhavisha said, we want you to be the head Pujari. So I came and I moved to Melbourne. And my 25 years in Melbourne began. And I started cooking Sunday feasts. And um, around uh, 78, about a year or so after Prabhupada passed away, um, I, I found myself at our Gopal's vegetarian restaurant and there's a huge history of restaurants in australia i was there in the first one in melbourne and we used to cook wonderful wonderful prasadam and serve it out to people on nice little tables and and people were really enjoying it and and the manager of the restaurant brias patty he said to me hey you know Korma, people are loving the food you know uh i think you should do do some cooking classes so I said, oh, okay, let's give it a try. So we, I started running cooking classes. And at the same time, I was also cooking Sunday feasts at the same time. And I was also doing deity worship. So I was in the deity room in the morning. And then I would go to the restaurant. Uh, I would come out of the deity room. Somehow or other, I'd get my rounds chanted, go to the restaurant early, cook for the restaurant, and then once a week do cooking classes as well. So I was able to do many things at once. So I was doing cooking classes, my pujari work, and uh, and the the um whatever the third one was restaurant restaurant yeah there's a bit of dementia setting in here <laughs> um, and so um so i was able to do all these things and uh, and what was your question i'm i'm sorry i just uh the question was um you, I, like what happened from you know 1975 to 1990 so you were just giving a, a history of that that's right. And, and anyway, so the restaurants, uh, we moved to bigger and better premises and the restaurant was getting packed out with people. I was cooking you know, very well. I, I was actually basically inventing large scale recipes from the small recipes that I sort of had from here and there. And I suddenly and I came to the, the realization that it was it was time for me to get a cookbook together. Um, but. but Going back in time a little bit, uh, in 1982, um, uh, 1983, um, Nishringananda from ITV right. got in touch with me and he said, we want you to do some TV cookery shows. Mm. I said, oh, wow, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. He said, you'll have to come to L.A. I said, great. So I flew to L.A. and we did 20, we recorded 26 uh, cookery shows for the PBS network public broadcast system. Right, that's huge. PBS is big. It, well, it was. I don't know how big it was then, but it, but right. anyway, it was it was um, a sort of a non-commercial sort of venture. I don't exactly know whether there was much money to be made in it, but but anyway, that was wonderful. Being in LA was wonderful, and um, recording the TV shows were wonderful. This was the very first set of shows, which you, I'm looking quite young in those pictures in, in right, the, right. Uh, kind of like yeah no way 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 maybe, younger way before <laughs> but um but similar to that okay and uh, we recorded those shows and because they were very successful 
And and for those shows, I just used Yamuna's recipes because they were I hadn't done a cookbook yet. Right. And uh, so they were all Yamuna's recipes, and they turned out, you know, I mean, the production values were shocking, and it was pretty poor photography. But nevertheless, somehow or other, and they're still out there. You can still see them, and, uh, and hmm. you can still learn to cook from watching them um, in our little pretend kitchen there with the pretend windows and pretend stove and <laughs> an oven that was just pretend. Everything, yeah. everything was pretend. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it, it somehow it worked out. And then, then um, around um, a few years later, it, it, I, I thought to myself, I should do my own cookbook. I should get my own cookbook together. So around, I think I've got the dates all correct here. Around 1989, I took a leave of absence, as a sabbatical, whatever, from the restaurant uh, to work on my cookbook. And I actually never went back to the restaurant after that. But that was after, um, um, that was after, a, 79 to 80. It was 10 years, 10 years at Gopal's restaurant, which was wonderful, wow. a wonderful experience. And uh, that's where I got my kitchen experience also. And then, anyway, I, I spent uh, two years working on my cookbook. The cookbook came out. It was very successful. Um, it's now in its like 15th print run or something. And Which one um, is that? That's the that's the great vegetarian dishes. Oh, okay. Yeah, this uh, one. The one that you showed me. I mean, it's, it's been translated into, into Hungarian. Right, right. We translated into Farsi. This is the, the language of, 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 of uh, Iran. Wow. It's been translated into Italian. I got this amazing letter once from a lady in Iran. She said, um, she said I run a, a regular uh, cooking uh, uh, program at our house with 15 of my friends, and we're cooking from your book, mm. um, and the recipes are wonderful. We've all become vegetarians. And this is a you know, Muslim lady, and wow. I was very impressed. And I said, "Do you have?" Um, I said, "Do you all, do you all speak and, and, and read English?" And she said, "No, we have your Iranian copy." And I said, "Oh my gosh, what Iranian copy?" <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even I know. Didn't, I didn't even know, and because it was completely bootlegged. Um, oh. So they just did it. You know, they just quietly, you know, copied the pictures and copied the text into, into Farsi. Oh gosh! And, uh, I think that I think I think basically the BBT gave up on suing them. But it's out there, and um, and so anyway, it's it was the cookbook years were, were spectacular, and yeah. um, and uh, well, that brings us up to oh yes, yeah, so, so then Nishingananda invited me back to do another series mm. in, in America, so we did the second twenty-six part series. And the production values were a bit better. And then I did, uh, and then some years later, I did a third series in Australia. Um, so there were uh, seventy-something episodes, and in Australia, um, that was screened on on uh, prime time, nationwide, TV, at seven o'clock in the evening, straight after the news. And it, so it was like so many people saw it. Wow! And that was sort of like my. Um, Famous years, you know, people would stop me on the street and ask for an autograph. And stuff. Really? Yeah. You know, I'd be going on the tram, hopping in the tram to get to the restaurant to cook. Yeah. And people would say, hey, Corm, I loved your show last night. And wow. Like that, you know? So it was sort of fun. Amazing, amazing. Um, amazing. So there were, it was, and then I started doing cookery classes all around Australia and colleges and cooking schools and then around the world. And it just sort of increased. 
Um, but there was something else that happened somewhere in, 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 the, in that mix. I just took some notes here. Um, what happened? Well, there was cooking classes. There was the TV shows. Yeah. Anyway, so then I started traveling around the world and I, I, I went to Poland and Russia and China and Hong Kong and everywhere and did cookery classes. And of course, that was fun. It's nice to travel around. And um, you basically, asked me, actually. You basically, you, tra you, tra you transitioned from, from, from staying in the temple and uh, to, to the restaurant and now you are traveling and teaching. So I wasn't really in the temple anymore. I was, I, I, at the, you know, by the time I was traveling around, I'd done a number of other services in the temple at the same time as being head pujari usually. Like I spent some years on Sankatan. I was very impressed by the, the Sankatan revolution. The book distribution revolution in Australia was taking off. The famous Budimanta, brother of um, Keshava, had come to Australia. Tripurari uh, Swami had, uh, who was a brahmachari at the time, if I'm not mistaken, right. came to Australia and he just ignited, they both ignited a Sankirtan revolution. I mean, it's like we had book storerooms full to the brim with books. Like we got a shipment of 20,000 Nectar of Devotions and we got like 30,000 Krishna book trilogies. Oh my God. What are we going to do with all these books? So, you know, we, we, we took a few copies and cut out the pictures and stuck them on the Brahmachari wall. And what are we going to do with all these books? And we, we had no idea. We had no idea what to do with them. And then, of course, Tripurari and Bodhimata came and showed us that you can actually go onto the street and sell books on the street. It was like unheard of. We would just do back to Godheads. By this stage, I, I was a back to Godhead distributor. Right. And I remember on Christmas Eve in 1974, I went out in my dhoti and, and sold 1,000 Back to Godhead magazines in one day. 1,000? 1,000. And, and uh, I, uh, I, think I, I think I held the record at that stage. But it was, it was ecstatic. It was wonderful. I was never very good at distributing big books. I just kept it to Back to Godheads, which I really enjoyed doing. And, and then the devotees and the Sankatan devotees, it was like infectious. They were coming back to the temple and they were telling all their Sankatan stories. And I asked the temple president, um, at the time, I said, I'd really like, could I be excused and could I jo join the book distribution, you know, hop in one of the vans and just drive somewhere and become a book distributor. So I got the chance. And so we, they were going to open up a temple in Perth in Western Australia, which is 2,500 kilometres from Sydney. It takes three days to drive from Sydney to Perth. And at wow. that stage, there were not even sealed roads. It was just like sandy dirt roads. And so we hopped in the van and I thought there was me, there was Buddy Manta, there was Chiru, and there was Harry Sori. And I remember having an argument in the back of the van. Uh, there was me and Harry Sori sitting with our heads crushed up against the ceiling because there were so many books in the van we could hardly move. Wow. And he, he was saying to me, when we get to Perth, I'm going to be the temple president. <laughs> So that was our little um, arrangement. I didn't. Uh, know. So he was. So anyway, so we got to Perth and we started distributing books, and it was just magnificent. I my job actually was just to go to the to the van, and bring boxes of books to the book distributors and tear them open. And by the time I had that made that two minute walk from the van to the book distributors, 
that emptied the box. So uh, then I ran back to the van with the empty boxes and then I brought more boxes and then those boxes were empty and I spent all morning just bringing boxes and then they were getting in. People were lining up with $10 in their hand to buy a Krishna book and wow. lining up to buy a hardcover Bhagavad Gita, a Macmillan Gita with $10 in their hand, sometimes $20 to buy one of each. It was just, they'd never seen the devotees there. And I was having a great time, but one day I started to feel a little ill and I was cooking the Sunday feast and I sort of like collapsed in the kitchen and found myself asleep in the middle of the floor with the tomato chutney burning on the stove. <laughs> and, I, and I said to Chiru the next day, I said, oh, I said to Harry Sori, I, I, I'm not feeling well, I should go to the hospital. And uh, anyway, to cut a long, a long funny story short, I had hepatitis because one of the devotees who had a brahmachari in Sydney Temple just before the van drove off to go on Harinam Sankirtan, it was just after the Sunday feast, and I was sitting down next to this devotee who had blooped and had just come back from living in a hippie commune, and he shared one of his samosas with me, and he had he had hepatitis. Oh my god! So, so they put me in quarantine in the hospital for three weeks, and I was very ill. It was hepatitis D or something, or A, any one of the less dangerous ones. But I was bright yellow, and I was very weak. And by the time I came out, someone had come from the other side of Australia to replace me. And they said, I'm sorry, Cormor, I think it's you're going to have to go back. So that was my Sankatan um, sort of adventure cut short by Providence. Mm. So anyway, us, yeah. 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 So. And you, you mentioned Mother Yamuna. She was the only one who had a cookbook at the time. So what was your experience? Did you ever meet her? Did you ever interact with her? Well, I met her in 1974. We, uh, See, many things, as you know, as a, as a devotee, you have many things going on at once. So not mm. only were all these things going on, we were going to India every year from 1974 for the Maipur Brindavan Festival. 1974 was the first year that the Australian devotees went. It was really the first uh, uh, real Maipur Brindavan Festival. So after the Maipur event, we went to Brindavan and we were staying in Fogala Ashram uh, because there was no Krishna Balaram Mandir built yet we would have Prabhupada will be speaking at the Fogal ashram in the evenings and uh temple was still under construction and uh they would serve prasadam um at the Fogal ashram on the roof and yamuna and gurudas were there at the time i didn't know who she was and um when i read her the memoirs of about yamuna i realized that that's that's who i was i i saw at the time and spoke to at the time Although at the time I didn't know who it was, um, I basically said, uh, "What time is lunch?" <laughs> and she said, "Lunch is at one o'clock, Prabhu, and uh, be there." And I said, "I will." And uh, that's that's the only thing I ever said to her. Wow. Now later on, l later on, and she was organising the cooking, and it was it was wonderful. But I never really had any interactions with Jumuna, other than. Um, borrowing adapting um some of her recipes from our really uncle. you know slightly um slightly um slightly plagiarizing them just a few wow okay cool there's a few there's a few I, I you could say i was inspired by her recipes um right now in 1990 something i was in mayapur and that was the year that jamuna came to mayapur and she wasn't that well at the time, and I, but I could tell it was her coming towards the temple and way in the distance. 
for greeting the deities. And I was thinking, wow, here's Jamuna. I wonder if she's going to chastise me for using some of her recipes. Mm. And um, especially, I, I especially liked her recipes that were serialized in Back to Godhead magazine. I don't know whether you ever followed the history of Back to Godhead, but Vishaka and Yamuna would publish um, Yamuna's recipes in the Back to mm. Godhead magazine before they made it to the book. So these okay. were the recipes that I used, not the ones from the book, but the ones mm. that were that were less edited than the ones that ended up in the cookbook, because she spent you know, many, many years on the book. So it was those recipes that I used. So it was nothing, I didn't, I wasn't doing anything illegal. But I was thinking, she was walking and coming towards me, and I was thinking, I wonder if she's going to, I was I was in this sort of reverie that she was going to say, Koma, you know, you didn't even ask me to use those recipes. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, she's going to chastise me. Of course, you know, she wouldn't have done such a thing. Anyway, when she was about 100 yards around away from the temple, I looked and she had turned around because she wasn't feeling well, and she went back to her room where she was staying, and I never saw her again. So oh. my only interaction with Yamuna was asking him what time lunch was. Later, it was, food, it was food related. Right, but later in later years, you never kind of crossed paths or anything. No. Very interesting. Uh, hang on a sec. Can you hear that? Can you turn that off? I'm sorry. The air conditioning's on and it's a bit loud. Oh, no, it's so, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, what were you asking? No, I was saying, um, y y so you never cross paths with her again no never i mean I, I was a ardent fan right and i studied her, her her big book you know from beginning to end and it was inspirational to me and when i did my first book i basically put the book together the the, the i mean the, the recipes themselves um inspired by the way she did it with with great intricacies and putting you know uh, perhaps even too much detail but you know like one teaspoon is this many grams or this many mils. Mm. Um, uh, so basically, I, I did it the way she did it um, because mm. she was my, she was the ben <laughs> the benchmark of of cookbook perfect perfection for me. Right, right. And then so uh, we went to like 1990, and then from then onward, what was it like? Where were you, what were you doing? Well, I was, uh, I mean, because I was also, of uh, course, at the same time, there were all these different layers in my life. I, I was also married, you know, so right. I did the whole marriage uh, life. So I was married and, I, and then I would be traveling and then I would be at the restaurant and then I would be in the Didi room in the morning and then I'd be at this cooking the Sunday feast. So it was like many, many different services at once. I did a few other different services. I was vice president for a while. I was um i what else was i doing um i, I did a whole lot of different services in the temple mm. taking out uh taking out the hurry now parties uh that became a big thing um because i used to that's one of my favorite services is leading kirtan on the street right 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 i wanted to say uh my first interaction with you I, as i mentioned to you but to the lit for the listeners I, I, someone sent me a recording of you singing Mangalarti and that became, I listened to that so many times because it was so incredibly beautiful. And they, and I was like, who is it? And then, and they, they said, it said Kurma Das. And I was like, okay, the only Kurma Das that I ever heard of was the, the chef. And then I asked his devotee, like, is it the same person? They're like, yeah, it's the same verse. I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. So for our listeners, if you Google, uh, I think mean, on YouTube there's a few kirtans. Please listen to Prabhu's kirtans. Beautiful, 
uh, beautiful kirtans. I love the way it's like kind of like my father-in-law, my father-in-law Kripamoy Prabhu also does kirtans. Like, it, and and in 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 New Jersey, we had a devotee uh, living here, Vishnu Gada Prabhu, who was also a Prabhupada disciple. There's like this like uh, older Iskon style of kirtan that's so. Uh, like it's like, it's like all about dancing and standing and and uh, playing murdanga while you sing and like I, it's I love that so much I, I I really admire all the devotees who do the kirtan like that a lot thank you so much for for and that's you said that's one of your favorite services I love it and leading Mangalarti is is the most favorite of all, all my kirtan wow best, best place to be recently a couple of years back my wife and I um, by the way I didn't I haven't introduced my wife Dira and Lita to all our Go ahead, please, please, yes. Come over here, Dira. She's, she's my inspiration and my she's my technical support here, just in case something goes wrong, because I haven't got a clue. <laughs> this is Dira Lalita. No, we, we can't exactly, oh, you know, let me make the screen bigger so we could see her. There we go. Hi, Vol. Hi, Krishna Mataji. Nice to see you. Thank you for helping us out uh, technologically here and supporting Prabhu. So yes, Dear and Lita and I went to Sweden three or four years back, and uh, we were invited to cook for the BBT meetings. Okay. And, um, and of course, it was midsummer. It, we were, it was literally on the special midsummer festival in uh, in Sweden. So there was uh, it didn't get dark at night. It was like light all night. Mm. So Mangalarshi, you know, you get up at two thirty, three o'clock, three thirty, whatever. It's, it's light. So <laughs> it's an unusual experience. Um, Standing in the temple room with the sun blazing through the, the windows at Mangalarji time, um, <laughs> but it, it was it was wonderful to it because it it had been quite a few years since I'd been you know living in a temple, so in at the uh, at the um, at the BBT at the temple there in in Sweden, not the Almvik's guard but the Korsnus guard, mm. um, beautiful deities, and it was nice to be there for Mangalarji again with all the. Stalwarts. There was Vaisheshika Prabhu and Jayadvaita Swami and all the BBT men. It was wonderful, and I, it's it's the it's always the highlight of my day if I can actually, you know, because living at home, you know, I, we don't have Mangalarji at home. We we get up, right. we're up, uh, we're up, you know, like you know, three or four in the morning, but but we don't have a Mangalarji ceremony because it's just two of us, and so we just. Right. I remember reading Prabhupada said, if you don't have Mangalati, at least chant Japa. So, you know, we're chanting Hare Krishna but in, without yes. feedback. But it's a, it's a, but there's nothing to compare to Mangalati. It's just wonderful. Wonderful, uh, yes. And the Melbourne Temple Mangalatis were, were very, very special to me. And I, I, get, I got a whole, a uh, very deep attraction to the deities in Melbourne and to the devotees. And because uh, I spent, as I said, a quarter of a century in that temple. Mm. It was very, it was a big part of my spiritual life. Half of my, you know, more half of my spiritual life was spent in, in that temple. Mm. I remember, I remember in the early, I think it was the two thousands. Uh, there was this website called Planet Iskon, and I think you had a blog or something like that where you would you would show all the places that you were going and teaching. So in the two thousands, that's what you were mostly doing: traveling and doing cooking classes for like so, just like secular people, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I did about 3,500 cookery classes in that period. Oh, my goodness. Which is a vast amount of classes. I was teaching three, four, five times a week for years and years and years. Um, in fact, if you go to korma.net uh, um, forward slash blog, you'll find the archives of all of those articles, and they're all, they're all wow. still there. And... Um, um, 
it was just wonderful. It, uh, I would do, I spent eight years in Western Australia in Perth. So I, I, I was cooking at uh, various colleges, um, various institutions for adult education, summer schools, all this were all with regular, regular people, not with devotees. Right. And um, I would teach in people's homes. That was the really the highlight of my cooking life. I would have cooking classes in people's homes. I would advertise myself, like, invite me to your home, invite 10 or 12 or more of your friends, and we're going to cook a big feast together. We'd plan a menu with the hostess. She would. I would give her a shopping list. She'd buy the burger. I'd, it might be the, the other side of Australia. It might be, you know, a few hours train trip away, wherever it was. I would fly there. They would put me up accommodate me we'd have the cookery class all have the, the the hosts and the hostesses friends would come extremely enthusiastic and we'd cook for a whole day at a huge magnificent feast there's lots of pictures on my in my archives mm. and then we'd sit down in, in and there was a, a you know a beautiful table with magnificent bowls of delicacies and people were just blown away and we'd have a huge feast and this this went on for years and years and years and years and years and and uh, it was it was spectacular it was so much fun mm. did you say korma.net uh yeah korma.net forward slash blog i think that's where you'll find them mm -hmm. um and it's it's, it's arranged in uh, years and you can just click on there, there's an index of topics and there's an index of dates but you can just go open up anything and you'll see various things there it's very cool uh, i'm just on it right now wow very nice. Um, so then, so, so okay, so um, you were talking about uh, the cooking classes. So do you think that the cooking classes are still a good way to like share Krishna consciousness? Like when you, when you, did, when you did cooking classes, were you also like speaking maybe philosophy or something? Not much philosophy, but I was right. just basically being a devotee in, in front of them, you know? I mean, mm. we... Do, I'd, I'd do a little offering, you know, I'd say, now I'm going to, you know, chant some prayers. And oh, wow. And I'd do a little mental offering. I couldn't sort of set up an altar. Most right. of these people, a lot of these people were not even vegetarians and their friends were not vegetarians, sometimes all meat eaters. And, um, but, um, you know, they were respectful. And they saw that I wasn't drinking sometimes. I told people, don't, don't drink alcohol during the cooking classes. Sometimes they'd right. crack open a bottle of champagne or something at the end. I couldn't really do anything about that. <laughs> but they saw that I wasn't drinking and I, and I was sort of like, you know, chased in my behavior. And yes. they would always ask so many questions. So, what, you know, so you, I, tell me you're a Hare Krishna. Yeah, I'm a Hare Krishna. And what do you what do? You do? And what? So it was low-key preaching. Um, but the main thrust was to engage them in taking prasadam. And it was a way that I could support myself very well. Wow very well and um it's a wonderful thing for devotees to do now of course at the moment you know the world is in a strange place and you're not going to get invited around to people's houses at this stage yeah yeah, yeah. But it's not, this is not going to go on forever although it's probably is going to go on for some years but um if you want to make friends with people and 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 make them your you know your take them into your confidence and and make them in, very impressed with Krishna consciousness, you know, go and cook prasadam at their house and share it with them. And it's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I've, I've still, I'm still keeping, keeping in touch with some of those people that I cook in whose houses I cooked at, you know, 10, 20, 30 years Amazing. ago. It's, it's wonderful. It was, it was a very special gift from Krishna 
and and somehow or other i'm in, I, i'm always empowered to be able to do it in exactly the time that i was allo allotted to do it it's some special krishna gives me some special empowerment and i can do it i can entertain the, the guests crack jokes i can cook i can get them to help with the cooking and then there's maybe five people with each with a pot on a stove somewhere and yeah. i'm supervising it and then they're cutting that that up and they're cutting that and i'm doing that and i'm educating and telling them all sorts of nutritional stories and history and, and i'm doing it all at once and i'm sort of able to to sort of keep it all on track mm. and um, and then finish exactly the right time and then get it all presented nicely I, I, it's like it's like some special gift from krishna but it's it's i i tried to you know do it because i knew that that's what I had no doubt that this is what Krishna wants me to do for the rest of my life is to have something to do with cooking. Mm. It was made abundantly clear to me. Um, um, but of course now my life has changed somewhat. Yeah. I, I know that you were Pujari, you know, for many, many years before and the, the connection with the Pujari room and the kitchen is very, you know, there's a, there's a deep connection between those two things as far as like, okay, there's some cleanliness involved, you know, you don't taste anything before you have to be clean when you go in. So how did that, how did you kind of balance when you were teaching people about cooking? Uh, but at the same time, you were Pujari as well. Like for, for me, I would be like, okay, don't, no, don't taste that. Or, or, or did you, uh, did you pass dual recently or something, you know, like something dumb like that, but like, well, how would really, you? Yeah. Fantastic question. It's very, it was very difficult. I remember I did one cooking class and the lady um, I went into the kitchen and there was carpet in the kitchen. Oh my god! And I thought this is this, this is this is not this is not a good sign. <laughs> and then in comes uh, the guests are all arriving and everything, and in in into the kitchen bounds two huge German Shepherd dogs. Oh my gosh! Uh, there was Heidi and Fritzy, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, I said dogs." I said, "I'm not sure." And as I was talking, they were sniffing me and licking me and <laughs> practically headbutting me. They were the biggest dogs I've ever seen. And I said, look, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can do a cooking class here with these dogs. She said, Heidi, Fritzi, would you like to go outside? Said, oh, they don't want to go outside. So, so they joined us for the cooking class. Mm. And uh, so it was. That was a, that was a that was a cooking class from hell. That one. But normally, <laughs> normally I told people, look, if you've got cats and dogs, please, you know. And most of the time, they wouldn't even think about letting them in the house, you know, right. while the cooking class was going on. But then, of course, you know, of course, people. And I would tell people, look, we. It's part of our standard that we don't taste anything when we cook. And most of the time, they didn't. That's good. They, they would always respect, you know, what you had to say. And as far as there being sushi, there's no question of that. Right. Um, but it was just, it was just a special. It was like a preaching opportunity. I, I didn't. I had to shut down my my pujari persona. Right. And, right. And just become something else for the time, you know. Right. Right. That's, um, what, you, that's what you have to do. Right. So now, like in more recent years, you've been in Ireland. Yeah. Since uh, since almost six years now. Tell us a little bit, like, how did you end up there and, and what's your life, what does your life look like now? Right. Well, I was living in the house that my, um, that my dad, that I grew up in, in, in Sydney, actually. My dad, my mother passed away in 2007. And uh, at this time, I, that, I was right in the thick of my traveling. And uh, every year, every year, I'd 
uh, or sometimes two or three times a year, I'd come through because I was living in Western Australia. I would uh, find myself in Sydney and I would spend some time with my dad and see how he was going. My mother, mother had passed away and my father's health started to, to, to deteriorate. So I thought maybe I should um, come and live with him and look after him and cook for him. So that's what happened. I moved into my dad's house. And I was cooking for my dad and uh, he was enjoying prasadam because my dad had actually met Prabhupada in 1971. He'd done some service for Srila Prabhupada wow. by opening, opening the temple door for him. And Prabhupada smiled at him and nodded. Wow. So he'd done some service. And ever since then, doing some service for Prabhupada, he was very appreciative of Srila Prabhupada. He met him a couple of times. And uh, when the Srila Prabhupada Leelam Rita came out, written by Satsuruk Das Goswami, my father read it all cover to cover. And he... He even started chanting Japa uh, one round a day for, for a little period of his life. Wow. So anyway, I was living in my dad's house, but then my dad's health deteriorated and it was it, it came to the point with my sister and my, myself. I, I have two sisters and we all, we all moved to, um, we all migrated to Australia when, when I was 12 because I was right. living in England. I, I missed out that part of the story. Mm -hmm. So my sister and my, my el the elder of my two sisters and I conferred and we thought, I don't think we, I, I don't think it's possible for my dad to live here anymore. It's too difficult to look after him. So we put him in, put him in a nursing home. And then I was living in the house, um, but the, um, it got too expensive to pay for his uh, nursing home bills. So it was time to sell the house. My dad wasn't mm -hmm. going to move back in the house. So then I was thinking, okay, um, now at this stage, uh, I was married to Dira Lalita and we thought, okay, where are we going to live? And we were looking at all different places. We looked at, we looked at uh, New Zealand, we looked at Melbourne, we looked at Brazil, um, England, and we were looking at all, and, none, and, and even Hong Kong, none of these things sort of uh, developed. And we were seriously thinking about living in England because I was offered a job to cook for the Krishna Jayanti, uh, was it? What's it called? Krishna Avanti. Right, right, right. School, to run the kitchen, so oh, that was wow. looking like that may happen. But then I, but then we looked at the logistics of it all and how much work was involved, and it was looking pretty much like uh, too much for me. Um, and for various reasons, we didn't end up in England. And uh, but sometime in the past, before then, about five or six years or so before. In one of my world cooking tours, I'd, I'd been in Ireland and I, I did cooking classes in Ireland in 2003. And um, the idea of moving to Ireland uh, appealed to me and I knew some devotees there. And one thing led to another and Krishna basically shone a light on that particular choice. This is where you should be. We were praying to Krishna, where are we going to live? Are we going to live somewhere in Australia? Are we going to be a bit more adventurous? And so it all happened that it so happened that we ended up living in Ireland. And people say, you know, because there's a lot of Irish people living in Australia and they move there because the weather here is so shite, as they say in Ireland. <laughs> and um, and they all just go and live in Australia because it's nice and sunny. And they, the people said to me, what are you doing living in Ireland? It's terrible weather and i said right. yeah but you know we, we wanted a sea change which we did and it worked out well uh, and it's just um it's at this point in time it's uh it's working for us it's a different lifestyle it's a different lifestyle um you know i'm doing my deity worship every day 
Um, yeah, we yeah. have our Shalagram Shila and Bovidan Shila's worships are being worshipped. Um, all my spiritual desires have uh, always been fulfilled. So I was, I was thinking, I, I was desiring to worship Tulsi. And uh, when we got here to Ireland, some devotees had some Tulsi plants and they said, we, we would like, like to give you some little Tulsi. So we wow. started with Tulsi. Um, I, we used to have, like, for instance, I used to have a picture of Govardhan Hill on the altar. Mm. Um, and um, I would always, you know, during the puja, I was looking at Govardhan Hill and I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to worship a Giriraj Govardhan Shila? And I was, right. and then I, I remember one day praying to Govardhan Hill, if you were, if you think it's appropriate, please come. Right. And then uh, about a week later, I got a, uh, an email from Jaitiya Charan, who's a Pujari. Oh yes, I know him. Yeah, amazing devotee. And he said, my son. Um, uh, just came back from Brindavan and he's brought back a Govardhan Sheila that one senior devotee gave him. Um, would you like one? And I thought, oh my goodness, this <laughs> was coming. And he said, oh, by the way, he said, I'd like to send you a a Korma Shalagram as well. Wow. So it's a beautiful, beautiful Shalagram. Uh, Prabhupada's father worshipped Korma Shalagram. Right. Wow. Prabhupada recalls that his father used to. He used to keep the Korma shalagram in a handkerchief and he used to tie it around his neck and he wouldn't do anything without having the Korma shalagram with him. Amazing. So anyway, so my desires have always been fulfilled. And so I'm worshipping. And when I when I married Dear Lalita, she came with shalagram shilas. <laughs> it was the part of the package deal. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, she was worshipping shalagram shila. Okay. And... Um, it's, it's, anyway, it's a lot, there's some amazing stories there. But yeah. so Shalagram Sheila came, um, Govardhan Sheila came, Tulsi's come. And so, you know, I have to be careful what spiritual desires I have because they all get fulfilled. Amazing. And I also, I've always had an attraction towards gardening uh, because my father, when I was very young, he would grow fruits and vegetables and I used to watch him. And so in Sydney, I started to grow fruits and vegetables and herbs in my dad's garden uh, in the, in the uh, and it was uh, early, early 2000s. And um, when I came here to Ireland, I continued. And so I'm growing fruits and I, I especially like to grow flowers to worship the deities, fragrant flowers and, yeah. uh, and whatever else I can grow in the garden. So it's become, become a very... Big part of my life also gardening and growing fruits and vegetables to offer to Krishna. So and um, and there's nice devotees here in Ireland and we, we uh, up until the recent crisis with the lockdowns and everything, we were having regular sanghas and so I was um, so I regularly arrange get-togethers uh, with thirty or forty or fifty devotees from around Ireland. And the arrangement is that everybody cooks one preparation, offers it, and brings it along. So we would have, have wow. these spectacular prashadams with 30 or 40 dishes. Wow. Another aspect of my life is that I've always been interesting, interested in reuniting Prabhupada's disciples or Prabhupada's grand disciples. Mm -hmm. um, because in 1992, um, I arranged the first Prabhupada disciple reunion uh, of oh. Australia. Was it going to boat or something? No, that was that was the a later one. Oh, okay. That cool. was 2011. That was the third one. We did three. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one we did in Melbourne Temple, and devotees from all around the world, you know, devotees, I mean, 
you know, Churu and Vaivavi, they didn't come to the first one, but I think they came to the third one. Yeah. Um, and Upendra came before he passed away and Madhuvisa and, you know, stalwart devotees uh, came to that reunion. Um, and it was magnificent. We had so many devotees that, had, that was living in Australia, Prabhupada's disciples, and ones that had already moved somewhere else. And it was a huge job, but it was a, it was a wonderful experience. And at that reunion, we were all talking and reminiscing about the old days. And someone said, someone should write all this down. Mm. Someone should write all this down. And I thought to myself, yeah, maybe that's what I should do. So then I decided I was going to write a book. And I was going to go and find all the devotees that were living in Australia, not only Australians, but devotees who traveled with Prabhupada, like Shama Sundar and Shruti Kirti and Nanda Kumar and all these devotees and, and Bali Madan and Vegavan and all the devotees that were Prabhupada's secretaries and servants and pushed to Krishna, Swami. So I, I, after, um, I, I presented this idea to devotees and they said, yes, it's a great idea. I said, I, said, I need finance. So they arranged a Prabhupada, uh, you know, a special fund mm. and, and I traveled and, and interviewed devotees for five years uh, from 1994 to 1999 or not, on top of what you were already doing already doing and <laughs> I, I traveled around the world and I met all these wonderful devotees and spent time with them and interviewed and we had 800 hours of interviews and and, and then all of these interviews were just were, were uh, distilled down into my book and uh, I've always had this passion about you know keeping Prabhupada's devotees within the, you know, within our, our bosom, you know, not letting mm. them just fall away. Right. And so when I came to Ireland, it's just I just thought to myself, because Ireland's a bit of a, a country where devotees tend to be very separate from each other. It's part of the Irish mentality. They're sort of a fiery bunch. <laughs> so I, I decided it'd be nice to get devotees back together. You know, sometimes and sometimes devotees have been coming that haven't been with the devotees for decades, you know, and they're they're coming back. Right. So it's a, it's a very rewarding service. Wow. Is Duryodhana Guru near you? Yes, Duryodhana Guru, he's living in the same county as myself. Oh, wow. It's a beautiful countryside area. It's beautiful, yeah, County Wicklow. It's it's called the sunny southeast. I think the word sunny is in inverted commas. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be sunnier than the rest. You know, it's often snowing in other parts of Ireland, but it isn't snowing here. So that's yeah. a concession. So for yeah, he, he's not living very far away. For our listeners, uh, so you wrote this book, The Great Transcendental Adventure, it's called. Yeah, here it is. Um, yeah, please. Uh, my father my father read it. I read parts of it. Beautiful. Where are we? Here we are. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really is I mean a couple of devotees told me at the time that Dhanajaya Prabhu told me it was the best Prabhupada memories book that he's that he'd ever read. Um I felt myself I felt myself empowered by Krishna to write this book. I can only say, wow. I don't know how I did it, but I felt like Krishna was arranging uh, me to to write this book as a as a way of glorifying his his great devotee Srila Prabhupada, and um, it was a lot of fun. I, I tend to be very um, diligent in whatever I do, so I put a lot of effort into it, and it, it took me five years. Right, and um, but it's a great book. And um, I, I, I like to read it myself. It's uh, it, this is story of pro uh, someone you know someone gave Prabhupada some puris or something, and he said, "Who has made these?" And yeah. it was you who had made them. Can you tell it that was, story? It was me. Yeah, the story has got a little bit uh, um, 
adapted. <laughs> like a, like a lot of stories of Prabhupada, right? Uh, it's, it's amazing how they've embellished the story. Uh, but, you know, the story on the street is that Prabhupada called me into his room and he said, he, he looked at the Puris and he said, and he picked one and he put his finger in it and it, and, and the finger went through and it, it was like big and puffed and steam came out. I mean, I've even heard a version <laughs> from some Russian devotees. The Russian devotees really liked her. Anyway, I won't go into that. Um, so there was steam coming out and Prabhupada said, this is the best Puri. I like things cooked nicely. Thank you very much. Yeah. So that's the, that's the story on the street. But that's, that's the urban myth story. But the actual story was that this was at the time when Prabhupada was visiting Sydney Temple in 1973. I was the pujari there and I was cooking. I, I, I don't know, I seemed like I was cooking and doing duty worship all day and night. Um, I, I, uh, it was time for Prabhupada to go and speak at the Sydney Town Hall, which turned out to be a very big event. Uh, there were 2,000 people attending, attending and of course... The transcripts of all those events are in in, in the archives. The, the, the lecture was recorded, as, of course. Anyway, Prabhupada um, went to that event. It was very successful. I was alone at the temple, um, staying behind to cook the offering and do the evening arati and then the next offering and the next arati. And I cooked um, an eggplant and tomato, uh, eggplants and tomatoes, cauliflower and potatoes and some other nice recipe. I was getting quite good at cooking by then. And my puris were pretty good. I, and I, I used to make puris that did actually puff up and stay puffed up. Not the ones that they sort of like when, when you're in India or some places and they, they make all the puris and they throw them all into a basket and they're all compressed like like yeah. like tires. And yeah. they, have to, they have to peel them apart yeah. and they're all sort of flappy. I'm laughing because that's so my experience. Oh, my gosh. I remember once, I think it was Prabhupada actually said, um, <clears throat> they offered it some place, and Prabhupada picked it up and he flapped it and he said, This is Puri. <laughs> At least that, that could be another one of those Prabhupada stories. But anyway, um, no, my Puris were all individual. They were dry, they were crisp, they stayed puffed up. You even wow. you took, what, took them off the plug and put them on the. I mean, I just, I just. Figured it out. I, a lot of a lot of my cooking was self-taught as well. Uh, you just got to follow the recipe. People say, you know, how do I become a good cook? I say, just follow the recipes. <laughs> All you got to do is follow the recipes. But still, people can't. Some people can't follow recipes. They get my recipe. I got a friend who he said, I'm going to cook this for my book. I said, great. It's it's a fabulous recipe. Go ahead. And I eat, and then he served it, and it was nothing like the recipe. And I said, what happened? He said, well, I. I I followed the recipe, except I used caraway instead of cumin, and I didn't use wheat flour. I used rice flour, and I, I didn't put sugar in. I put honey in, and and I didn't use you know. But apart from that, it's your recipe. You know, some people are just, they, they can't they can't help themselves. Right. But anyway, I made the puris, and they were nice puris. And then I went, and I, I was doing you know, I went into the deity room. I offered the plate, and then I came out, and fifteen minutes later, I went back in, took the plate off the order, put it on the kitchen table, went back into the deity room, and I was doing arati. So anyway, Prabhupada came back from the town hall and he was feeling hungry because Prabhupada would often feel hungry, especially in cold climates. It was winter in, 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 in Sydney. And it was a cool night. It was a, not icy cold, but it was a cool night. And Prabhupada, when he preached, he, he'd get an appetite. He'd get an appetite. He was very enlivened. And he hadn't eaten since 12. And, you know, so it was like nine hours later. 
Oh wow! And he was, you know, so he was he was hungry. So off, as often was the case, he would say to his secretary or servant, "Is there any prasadam?" And uh, so Shruti, Shruti Kitty came down to the kitchen, and um, there was the Mahaprasadam sitting on the deity bench. So he got the prasadam, gathered it together, and brought it into the Prabhupada's room. Now, I, I, and it, but before Prabhupada, or while this was going on, Prabhupada actually came into the temple room while I was offering the arati, and I was doing the arati and singing at the same time because there was no one else there. Right, right. And uh, in those days, the, the 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 way it was done is that there had to be some sort of kirtan going on while there was arati going on. Mm. Sometimes we got around it by playing a tape of Prabhupada singing Krishna meditations or something, but never just doing the arati in complete silence. So somehow or other, I think that was the standard that we had. Uh, I was singing the top of my lungs. I was actually pretty ecstatic. And I was singing, singing, singing. And Prabhupada came right in the temple room. And he was standing right behind me, looking at Radha Gopinath, beautiful Radha Gopinath. And did you ever visit Sydney Temple, Prabhu? I did, yes. I did, yes. Yeah, Radha Gopinath, beautiful. They were installed in 1971. This is their 50th anniversary coming up. Wow. Um, April the 10th. Um, 1971 which is just a few weeks away it's also my 50th anniversary of moving in the temple coming up so time oh. really flies but anyway <laughs> Prabhupada was standing right behind me and i didn't know he was there and i didn't know until the next day when Bhagavan, who was at, at, with the entourage said Prabhupada was standing right behind you in, the, in, in while you're doing arati and i said really because by the time after offering the lamp i turned around Prabhupada had left the temple room right and uh, Prabhupada said to Vagavan, who is that? And he said, that's Kormadas. And he said, oh, he said, Kormadeva. So he sort of gave me a, a, a nickname. <laughs> um, I don't know, perhaps he liked my singing or whatever. So anyway, so then he took Prasadam. And I didn't know, I, I don't know if I figured out where the Prasadam had gone. I thought that, I think now that I might have thought that someone had come in and just stolen it all. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, that, that's all gone from my memory. But next day, Shruti Kiri came up to me and he said, Prabhupada really liked your puris. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said he ate quite a bit of sabji and he ate quite a few of your puris. And he said, he said whoever's cooked these puris, he is following the principle, principles. <laughs> well, the, and he, uh, the, I, so the story goes, well, the, the story on the street is, Whoever cooked these puris is following the regulative principles. But I don't think that's what Prabhupada said. I think Prabhupada was saying that he's following the principle of cooking. He's He knows how to do it properly. He's he's following the prescribed method of making puris. Right. I really think that's what Prabhupada was saying. But anyway, the story got garbled. Um, so, yeah, Prabhupada really liked the puris. And he told Shruti Kiri to learn from me how to make puris. I said, really? He said, yeah. Prabhupada said, you learn to cook puris like this. Wow. So wow. next day I went in the kitchen and I showed him how I make puris, which is pretty straightforward, just ghee, flour, salt, and um, and 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 um, I cooked them. Uh, for uh, what happened was that um, yeah, Prabhupada. What was happening was Prabhupada uh, was traveling to Hawaii the next day. Yeah. Well, first of all, he showed Shudigiri how to cook them, and then the next day. I showed him how to cook them. And the next day, Prabhupada was leaving for Hawaii, flying to Honolulu on the next leg of his tour. And um, Prabhupada said uh, to told Shudikiti to make, make some puris and sabji for the trip. Prabhupada would never go anywhere on the plane without bringing prasadam. Yeah. 
So I made an eggplant and potato subji with asafoetida and cumin and turmeric and salt and ground coriander and and uh, and puris. And Prabhupada took them on the plane with him. That was the only time I cooked for Prabhupada. Amazing. Wow. So it was nice. Fantastic. Um, so one thing is is to our listeners, I'm going to go through the comments. I see like tons of comments coming with questions. Keep your comments and questions succinct so I can put them on the screen for Prabhu to read and for the rest of our listeners and, and watchers to to uh, look at. But, but I want to go into our next thing, uh, which is uh, which I have a sound uh, a sound effect for. Food controversies. <laughs> Food controversies. Let's start, Prabhu, with masoor dal. What uh, is the deal with masoor dal? Why why is it considered like when it said it's pro? I think Prabhupada. Someone wrote Prabhupada said it has it has like the same kind of protein as meat, but it's yeah, not meat. It isn't meat. Prabhupada said it is like eating meat. It is like eating meat. Yes. Now that's. I'm just thinking. Is that the exact words? I tell you why. Because I I did a face. There was a Facebook page that I did about Masur Dal, and it, okay. you know how it grew, and there was like a hundred comments. <laughs> yes. And one person I took very seriously. He said, "My dad told me that Prabhupada told him that red lentils, Masur Dal, is like eating meat." And he quoted his dad, who Prabhupada had told. So I thought that was pretty authoritative. Right, because I'd heard that in a number of places. Now, it's it's an unusual thing because okay, they say that they say that urad dal. Um, some people say that urad dal has you know similar protein content to masur dal, um, and urad dal was Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's favorite dal, but he was a lifelong celibate, right. and so you know it's uh, it's not like urad dal is is, is disturbing. Um, but masur dal apparently is not good for brahmacharis because it overheats the body, right. and it it gives the uh, it, the tendency is for the body to discharge semen mm. without being wanted, right. and uh, you know involuntarily. So that is the effect of masur dal. So that is the main. Sometimes it's the details are not given, but that's the actual reason, and why masur dal uh, and why not other dals I can't exactly say, but masur dal. But then also, Prabhupada mentions lentils, lentils. Right. So it appears that brown, you know, and I've had this discussion with the, my, my publisher for the great vegetarian dishes because I had I have a recipe in there for brown lentil soup and brown lentil. Oh, yeah, I love that one. With, with um, shepherd's pie. And I said, and I wanted to put a masur recipe in there and, 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 um, and uh, the, the publisher said, um, he said, you can't publish a recipe with, uh, with masur dal. Prabhupada said, we're not allowed to eat masur dal. And I said, but what's, I said, not everyone that's reading this book is, is a devotee. He said, no, I'm, um, I don't want you to do it. I said, well, what about the brown lentils? What's the difference? Brown lentils. He said, there is a difference. I said, right. All right okay, well, fine. It's fine with me because I didn't want to have to cut all these recipes out. But then other places I've read where it says that lentils are included in the food category that shouldn't be eaten, you know, because there's pink lentils, but there's also French pre lentils, there's there's French black lentils. There's actually 15, 20 different varieties of lentils from various countries around the world. Right. All quite all quite different. And I really can't tell the difference between uh, Masur Dal and all of those lentils. The only thing is that those other lentils apparently are not mentioned by name or or, or banned. 
Right. But I can say for sure that Masur Dal Prabhupada recommended that it definitely should not be cooked by Vaishnavas. And you'll find um, that there are many Vaishnava kitchens around India that will not touch them. Right. right. So that one is that's an easy one to uh, to answer because it's pretty black <laughs> and in one sense because it's black because it's black and white. Yes. You yeah. Don't need Masur Dal. Now, you know, then 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 the question expands and because because in Iskon now you have you know there's restaurants there's people cooking at home, eating at home. There's, you know, sanghas where people cook and share prasadam. There's actual temples where there's installed deities, Radha and Krishna. And yeah. there is somewhat of a different standard of cooking in those in those places. I mean, if you're cooking at home for the wife and kids, um, it's it's different to cooking in in the temple where there's installed deities and shalagrams and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so... So that's just that's the preface for all the other things that you're going to be sure. asking me about. Like sure, probably, sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, the next thing was and and soybeans and sort of this kind right, of right. But I won't, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't interrupt. No, 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 no. Um, I know mushrooms. Probably, I there's a, there's a letter where Prabhupada says it's it's okay, but it's in the it's in kind of the mode of ignorance because it's the way it's grown. Uh, yeah, actually, Prabhupada said there is no harm in them in right. one letter. In one letter, but then right, there's right. another letter. There's another letter where Prabhupada's a little less lenient. Um, so yeah, that's the one you were referring to. So you know the thing is, when you use letters as a reference point, yes. When you use letters for a reference point, reference point, it's not foolproof, uh, because Prabhupada, when he wrote letters, he would write to a specific person. Exactly. And you know, in the early days, when Prabhupada <laughs> sent a letter. It would be put up on the notice board and it was like everyone can read this letter because it's a letter <laughs> from Prabhupada. And it was wonderful and innocent and it was nice. Yeah. But then you know, there were times in the since then where Prabhupada said, Look, this was this was a letter to you. This was not a letter to everyone. Or he would say, I didn't want you to publish the contents of this letter because uh, you know, this is confidential. This is to the person that I'm writing the letter to. Mm. That's why, you know, the, the, the Prabhupada letter, you know, compendium of Prabhupada's letters, you know, some people say that it shouldn't have been ever done because some of those letters were confidential. There's a lot to learn from the book and there's some wonderful things, but there are some things that actually Prabhupada would not have wanted um, to be public information because Prabhupada right. wrote to specific people, specific issues. Some of them had problems and Prabhupada gave them advice and it was confidential. Yeah. Yeah. What about so the same thing with letters and food? Because to some devotees, Prabhupada would say it's strictly forbidden, and some other devotees you would say there's you know there's no harm in it. Mm. Mushrooms are it seem to be in that category that there is no harm in them. Um, yeah. And then there's this, apparently there's a story which I which I heard late lately may be somewhat um, fiddled with or adjusted somewhat, and I'm it's a little embarrassing because I made it sort of like a big post. <laughs> that Prabhupada said that Lord Chaitanya, when he was in Jarikanda, he took mushrooms because... Really? I never heard that. Yeah, because... And, and I heard this via Malati. Wow. And um, But then lately I heard some other story and I thought that perhaps there were two stories that had got mixed up and someone got their timelines mixed up. And I don't want to pursue that one. But I do know that the story is going around that Prabhupada, when he was that sorry that Lord Chaitanya was it when he was in Jarikanda and he had the Bhattacharya, Brahmachari uh, assistant, yeah. they would eat roots and fruits and whatever they could find in the forest. 
And uh, so the story goes that, that he took some mushrooms also. Mm. And apparently Prabhupada said that. But where Prabhupada said that, I don't know. Now, the story about the mushroom is in the French farm. It seems yeah. to be true. Um, but then lately I've been hearing some stories that, that perhaps um, the time when Bhagawan was, uh, was in charge of the French farm and the time that Prabhupada visited the French farm, which was before, yeah. those two, there were two mushroom stories and they became conflated. <laughs> so, so now, I mean, if you had asked me that question uh, two weeks ago, I would have given you a different answer. But, I, you know, Interesting. sometimes just... Sometimes you just can't be sure whether a yeah. story is true, especially if it comes from a, you know, from word of mouth or from a letter. So the mm -hmm. bottom line really is, you know, was it in? Is it? Did Prabhupada say it? Can you? Do you have a recording of him saying it on tape? Mm. Yeah. Do you have a reputable source where there was a witness where Prabhupada said it to someone else? Like when I interviewed for my book, Prabhupada in Australia, people told me these amazing, fantastical stories, and I said. I can't publish the story because there's no one was there to to verify. I mean, I almost published the story. Prabhupada said, uh, this devotee called Mahajan, he said to me, and not and a different, an Australian Mahajan, he said to me, I was standing guard outside Prabhupada's room one day, and Prabhupada came out of his came out of his room and he was feeling cold. And he said, Can I borrow your sweater? And and then uh, I thought, okay. And Mahajan gave him his sweater and Prabhupada said, thank you very much. And he put on the sweater and he had it on for the rest of the day. I thought, that's an amazing story. I said, was, can you, was anyone else there? He said, no, it was just me. <laughs> and then he got back to me later in the day. He said, oh, sorry, Prabhu, it was a dream. <laughs> Gosh, that, that, that scares me a little because how many things that we do and say right now in our movement in 2021 comes from like, Prabhupada said this. A dream. Uh, yeah, but it was a dream or something, you know. Anyways, it's you've got to verify. That's why I had to. Yeah. I had to delete many stories that I, I and not include them in my book because there was no witness. Right. There were some amazing things where I found devotees that had witnessed it, and I there were stories that were so fantastical that I didn't want to put them in the book, but only because there were such credible witnesses that I did put them in. Yeah. So that's the other side of the story, and. Um, but, you know, when it comes to food and like, for instance, the story goes that Srila Prabhupada told Hridananda Das Goswami that soybeans are not suitable, not, not suitable for consumption. Right. And, and Hridananda Maharaj swears that that's what Prabhupada told him. There wasn't anyone else there at the time or, mm. or recall. But that is a story that we should not use soy products. So that's a big one. Yeah. But that's the only reference that I have. So, you know, things like soy sauce and and tofu and tempeh and and uh, and the list goes on yeah yeah wow so what to interesting do? that's an interesting it's an interesting part of the way i look at it is uh someone told me like the, the hierarchy of 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 like pramana like books are always first yes. and then there's like lectures and then there's something else and there's letters letters is all the way, all the way at the end for the reason you said that it's for a specific person you know and 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 it's he's writing for that person not for everyone to read so if it's in the book then then i take it as like you know that's the pramana but there's some things that are not written in the book that that you know like he's not going to write oh mushrooms are okay you know anyways funny funny thing to um talk I mean, about goes, yeah you key in soybeans on the on the beta base and you can't there's nothing so you can't you right know. Right. 
anyway so yes any more questions out there yeah there's a lot of questions let's look at the let's look at the comment section here so if you have any questions put them in the comment section we'll start taking them okay there's some really big long comments which which i can't completely post up here but it's going to cover your face for a second studies have shown among vegetarians around the world people from india the only group of vegetarians who have the same level risk heart disease as those indians who eat meat they were trying to figure out why that was the case and they concluded it was due to oil consumption and sedentary lifestyles we need mm -hmm. to get rid of the oil culture so that we don't see so many devotees leaving their bodies at 50 60 years old i guess that's a comment yeah, from uh, yeah Okay. basically probably was talking at the time when we were talking about uh ghee um, yeah i mean ghee is a big uh, is, is another big topic you know. right 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 okay we have a lot of c comments saying you know beautiful conversation very nice uh, uh okay what other projects are kumar uh, is working on at the moment i love his book so you said you were uh yeah go ahead take well, that one. the big cook's cookbook for want, of a better, for want of a better title, um, right. I mean, big cooks, but meaning not their body shape, but the, the fact that they're cooking big amounts. Uh, mm -hmm. But it could, they both could apply to me. Um, so the Big Cooks Cookbook uh, is something that I'd love to put together. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, three quarters done, but, you know, getting it from this stage to the final stage is, is mm -hmm. difficult. Um, I, I've also got plans to get my Great Transcendental Adventure as an audio book. Whatever. Oh, a few things on the back burner, so to speak. Nice. Very yeah. nice. Joan Morris says, any comments on favorite herbs for health? Well, they they've all got health properties. I mean, there's nothing in the health in the herb world that it doesn't have a healthy use. Uh, my favorites are um, you know, like fresh coriander, fresh parsley. Only because, uh, especially because they grow so easily, and, and I can grow them and go out. I can just walk out into the garden. Um, thyme, um, rosemary. If you want to grow herbs that will always be there for you and are very medicinal and very delicious, plant some thyme, plant rosemary, plant parsley. Because this is planting, but if you're buying them, there's another thing. It's easy, but yeah. if you're planting them, they'll always be there. You'll never get rid of them. And and bay leaves. I've got a bay leaf tree, bay leaf mm. trees outside my door that have been there for five years and will be there forever. And um, uh, what was the other thing I was thinking of the other day? Uh, well, parsley. Um, they're they're easy to grow and they're very all, always medicinal. So right, you know, yes, so many nice things. Someone is just saying this so beautiful hymn acknowledging his dear wife, a true Vaishnava and gentleman. This is at the time when we were uh, introducing uh, Mataji. That's very Thank nice. Hare Krishna Prabhu, if you could ask Kurma, did he ever get a chance to cook for Prabhupada? You ever you heard you heard the story just now? That's uh, right. so some of these comments are from neighbor. earlier. That's my next door neighbor, Terry. Right. Terry. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Uh, okay. Um, where can we buy this book? I, I assume you're talking about the. Any, any of your books, where can we get them? Cookbooks, you, you just go to Amazon or you go to your lo local Hare Krishna book shop, yeah. book table. Um, you, if you're in Europe, you can go to the, um, the um, BLS, Bhaktivedanta Library Services. Okay. Uh, if you're in India, you know, there's sources of books there. Uh, Australia, you know, Australian BBT. 
and uh, for the Great Transcendental Adventure, Australian BBT. Mm. Um, it's almost out of print. The other project that I've got happening is a, a, a reprint of this because it's almost out of, literally almost out of print. Wow. Um, if you want to know where to order a copy of The Great Transcendental Adventure, which is a fabulous read, um, it's uh, komadasa, kurmadasa at gmail.com. K-U-R-M-A-D-A-S-A, all lowercase, kurmadasa mm -hmm. at gmail.com. Write me a letter and I'll give you the address of the Sydney BBT and who to write to. There is limited copies there. On the screen here, uh, kurmadasa at gmail.com, like that? Yep. Very good. Yep. Okay, let's look at the other questions. Okay, here, this is cool. I wanted to know this as well. What is your favorite recipe or dish to eat? Tell us a little about about, about something you personally like to eat or cook. Thank you, Gene. Oh, wow. um, well, you know, um, I, I sort of expected this question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is always part of the questions. What's my favorite? And it's, you know, I would love to give you an immediate recipe, um, but, but I actually don't really have any favorites. Um, I have many recipes that I love. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, it's like someone asking you, you know, hey, I hear you've got like five children. What's your favorite? <laughs> right. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite child? I mean, you know, like right. it's like me asking you, do, which, which, which of your sons do you like more? You know, right, right. Um, so it's hard to answer. I mean, as far as recipes from my book that I think are, are just like unlimitedly adaptable and useful and nutritious and wonderful, it, it would have to be kitchery. Kitchery, yeah. Um, you know, nice. because there's there's hundreds and hundreds of ways of making kitchery with any different types of dals, different types of rices, different spices, different vegetables, wet, dry. Um, I would have to say that out of all the recipes in my book, that one is always the one that sticks in people's minds. They say, you know, I grew up, my mum used to cook kitchery out of your book for me. And I, I right, right. so I, I was, and kitchery is so important that, uh, even though I did three, actually four books, but the three three main books, cookbooks, and they've all got a different recipe for kitchery in them because kitchery is so mm. important. So I probably have to say kitchery would be my favorite. Nice, nice. I'm going to give my favorite, even though no one asked. What is your favorite? <laughs> I like... Um... For so, I mean, I like a ton of things, but I like uh, I like the meat lovers delight subji. Mm. I love that a lot. Like, oh my god, so good eggplant. I love eggplant. Uh, I like a lot of chutneys. Like, I'm looking at pi pineapple chutney, rather red chutney. I love those chutneys. I, I like it when it's like sweet, but then really spicy also. Okay. Too anyway, hot to bear, too sweet to resist. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, we can go on and on about my, what I like, but let's look at the other questions here. Um, Okay, here's one from Kirtan Premi. I heard a story of chocolate sundaesh offered to Radha Ras Bihari in Juhu. Is that true? Oh, yes. You know anything about that? Yeah. And, um, you know, Prabhupada did say when he was in India that you can buy sweets from the sweet shop and offer them directly on the altar for the Mangalari sweets. And that rule still applies. Um, I, I, dare, I dare say there are devotees cooking milk sweets for the deities. Um, but Prabhupada said it's fine. You can you can purchase sweets straight from the sweet shop, and offer them to the deities in India. But that's the only. I mean, he didn't give that rule. He didn't give that instruction anywhere else. I don't think. Right. Um, I have heard yes, chocolate sandesh. I I've, I have heard that that was one of the items. Wow. But um, you know, the other thing is with chocolate is that. Hold on, I need a sound effect for that. Oh yes, chocolate, chocolate. 
We're talking about chocolate, everyone. Everyone listen up. Oh, my God. <laughs> you, need, you need to play the, the music from the, from the, the, the Twilight Zone or something. <laughs> this is a whole other discussion. I know. In short, let's, let's talk in short. We're, we're coming up to sure, a time no, now. Robert gave different instructions, but the, yes. the predominance. And the thing is with Prabhupada's instructions, it's always best to look at them in chronological order. Because you see, sometimes Prabhupada was informed about a particular thing by some devotees, and then he found out that the devotees had misinformed him. And so he changed the instruction because he, he was given an update. You know, somewhere along the line, Prabhupada was found out that chocolate contains caffeine and it's a stimulant. And it, there are written instructions where it is not to be taken. And Harry saw his diary. He mentions at a time when they were making hot chocolate at, at one of the Prasadam booths. And Prabhupada heard about it and, and he basically pulled the rug out from under mm -hmm. that event because he said, no, devotees can't take um, chocolate milk, you know, hot, uh, hot chocolate, because right. it contains cocoa, cacao, whatever, and it's, it's a stimulant. So Prabhupada... Whereas perhaps you know earlier Prabhupada had you know given a slightly different instruction. So once again, it's 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 anecdotal evidence, um, and with anecdotal evidence, it doesn't always match the reality. Now it seems though that Prabhupada was not so much in favour of chocolate, and then there's stories where people, like for instance the famous story of Indra Swami, yes, um, where he gave Prabhupada two varieties of Swiss chocolate, and Prabhupada tasted them both. And he said he liked them. <laughs> Amazing. And that's that 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 happened. Yeah. And um, and so, it's endless. Yeah. What to do? What to do? I I think you I think the bottom line is that you can't get too caught up in. I mean, of course, I'm saying you can't get too caught up in it, but but also you can't be too frivolous about it either. So you got there's like a balance that needs to be had. I would say. There, ha there needs to be a balance, and it's very difficult to give definitive answers right okay it, yeah so yeah that's i mean basically you have to find out all the information about chocolate that you can and come to your own decision but the bottom line is really that Prabhupada was not that in favor of chocolate in varying you know degrees of, yeah of not in favor of extremely <laughs> not in favor or sometimes not in favor but not it's not something that Prabhupada would make a habit of eating that's for sure right from Nitai Garanga, Sri Hari, PhD, doctor. Prabhu, what's the story with garlic and onions and their potential med medicinal benefits? Hmm. Okay, that's a good good way of presenting the question. I mean, I've written some very, very lengthy and authoritative and well-researched information on Facebook about onions and garlic. Um, if you look up Kormadas Garlic, on your Facebook search, you'll find some really good articles. One big article that I spent a long time researching. Um, that'd be the easiest way to get a hold of it. If you're not on Facebook, I'm not sure, but, um, but sure I, can I can certainly send it to you on some other way. Um, now you're talking. He's specifically asking about the so-called health benefits of of um, garlic and onions. This will be benefits that people who are in favour of eating garlic and onions would say to you that, but it's. It's worth it to eat garlic and onions, onions because <coughs> they have some benefits. <coughs> but right. the, the bottom line, from what I can understand, is the the um, the the um, what's the word? The what's the opposite of benefit? 
the um, deer is the wordsmith here. What's the opposite of benefit? Anyway, the the things that are good about our garlic and onions are outweighed by the things that aren't good about them. I see. Um, the disadvantages. Right. Uh, garlic and onions have all sorts of health um, hazards. There's all sorts of health problems with garlic and onions. That, that article that I'm directing you to gives all the great details in, in, right. in traditional Chinese medicine, not 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 appreciated, etc., etc. Um, it's pretty. Pre it, there are no Vishnu temples in India where garlic and onions are offered. Yeah. And uh, as as in Masur Dal, they're not. Masur dal is not on the menu in any Vaishnava temple, nor is onion or garlic, or right. leeks or shallots. And there is the article there. I think there's a yeah. There's a there's a lengthy article for for Nita Goranga uh, Sri Hari Das. And there's a, there's a later one. There's a later one on Facebook which has got more okay. detail. Right, right, more detail. Awesome. All right, let's look at more questions here. Um, oh, this is interesting. I have a comment at the top how devotees would cook for Srila Prabhupada. Would they ever just offer it to him directly? Interesting question. Yes, yes, most definitely. Without uh, offering it to Krishna? Of course. Right. They would never offer it to Krishna first. They would offer it to Prabhupada because it was like the mood was Saksha Dari Tvena Samasta Shastri. That right. This is Krishna's representative. This is non-different to having Krishna here right in front of me. I'm offering Prabhupada this plate of, of, of food stuff and he's eating it. And Prabhupada would never say things like, well, is it offered? Of course, it, I mean, some devotees ask that. They say, well, yeah. you know, did you offer it? What, what do you mean, did I offer it? Oh, yes, I offered it to Prabhupada I got, and, he, and he ate it. Mm -hmm. so, so that's how it was done. Wonderful. That's how it was done. We would just offer it to Prabhupada and he would accept it on behalf of Krishna. Very nice. Chia seeds during Ekadashi, yes or no? Other ways to get creative during Ekadashi. Ekadashi is another one of those. Yeah, great questions. All oh, right. You're going to have a few Ekadashi memes coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I was so chuffed that you like my memes. Uh, oh, they were like, the best. It made my, made my life, actually. They were, they were fantastic. Chia seeds. I don't think chia seeds break Ekadashi, but I'll have to look it up. Okay. I mean, it's a seed, right? So, I mean, what is your, what's your, like, attitude towards Ekadashi? Some people say... Prabhupada said, no grains, no beans. We're going to strictly follow to that grains and beans uh, prescription. Yeah. Okay, so that means we can have Ekadashi pizza because, you know, we're going to use this kind of flour that doesn't have any grains in it. And like, yeah, well, that's that's okay. But then you've got another way, another sort of strange strand of events is that you've got other Gaudias who follow Ekadashis and they say, you're eating, you're eating tomatoes? That or carrots or something, food? right. You're eating tomatoes? You don't need, and then you have these Prasadarians and and these other Facebook pages where people ask people you know like simple uh, like people who are not devotees, practicing devotees, but especially members of the Indian community, who say what shouldn't I eat today because it's a codice. And then you've got all these answers. Some of them are coming from this mutt and this other mutt and other right. various Vaishnava groups, and and then you have Vaish other Vaishnava groups from India. Who are not Gaudiya Vaishnavas, but they're other Vaishnavas, and they all follow a codice differently. Yes, and you'll go mad if you try to put them all together. Yes, so basically, I advise people, you know, who say no, 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 no eggplants on a codice, and I say, look, Prabhupada took eggplants on a codice, Prabhupada took cumin seeds, he ate tomatoes. Um, we just, as followers of Srila Prabhupada, we ate what we eat what Srila Prabhupada ate. Right. And if yeah. you want to follow a codice like your mother or your grandmother showed you. 
then do it. But <laughs> but it's not that that may not be everyone's standard. And right. because we're following Prabhupada, you you know you may be following your grandmother's standard, but we're following Prabhupada and Prabhupada. This is how he observed a Godasi, and it was very simple. And, and you know, and here's yeah. another interesting thing: this whole thing about breaking a Godasi before seven fifty-two. <laughs> I think I got it into with you on Facebook maybe once. Anyway, go ahead. In Krishna Balaram Mandi, I remember lining up one day, and there was like three minutes and fifty seconds that you had to break your codicy, and and so they, you know, you, you, we were lining up for Charan and Rita, and as we were lining up for Charan and Rita, there was someone there with a bowl of cold halva and a bowl of cold sweet rice, and they were slapping this cold grains in your hands. Quickly eat it, Prabhu! Quickly, quickly! You've only got two. Um, Prabhupada never followed anything like that at all. He would right. have breakfast the day after a codicy and he would eat grains. Right. He would this whole codicy parana, this whole thing about the time to break, that's something that's come from other Vaishnava mutts. Mm. And it is not and, and there's a long history behind it. And and I'm sure. not I'm not discrediting any of the devotees that have done all the research and introduced these standards. Sure. But it was not it was not Prabhupada's standard. And a lot of right. things in ISKCON today have nothing to do with what Prabhupada's original standard was. And somehow or other, all yeah. the way from leading kirtan to how to cook, to what to cook, when to cook, and, and how you know complicated devotees are making things when Prabhupada never made it that complicated, yeah. it's, it's an issue. And especially with many Prabhupada disciples, they say, what is going on? The world's gone mad. Because right. that's not how Prabhupada did it. Right. And, and it's, it's, that, that is a concern with many of us older devotees, right. especially with cooking, especially with kirtan and... Mm. Deity worship, and there's even stories that Prabhupada never authorized um, Govardhan worship of Govardhan Shila, right, right? And that was something that came after his after his disappearance, right? When I did when I did the uh, deity worship course in Mayapur, we were talking to uh, Pankajangri and Janani Vas Prabhus, and we're right. talking about Govardhan Shila worship, and they were like, "Prabhupada didn't say anything about it, so we can't say anything about it." Right. You know, that's so right. that's what they yeah. said. So there's many many things that have crept in, right. That's because we have been a little bit um, too mixy-mixy with other Vaishnava groups. Mm. And Prabhupada wanted us not to take, you know, instructions and, and directions and, and standards from other Vaishnava groups because it, it, this ISKCON is Prabhupada and Prabhupada is ISKCON and we're following right. his standards. Otherwise, it becomes a complete chaos. And that's what Prabhupada wanted us to avoid. Right. And in, and, and it's a big history, but, you know, this is what's happening. Right. I follow Kumar Prabhu's uh, Facebook page, and I'm amazed how he lives his life in Ireland. Can you just ask him to describe what is his routine like? Tell us a little bit about your daily routine. Yeah, well, we get up. Um, at the moment, it's easy to get up before Brahma Mahuta because sunrise is at like 8-something at the moment. Mm. But by the middle of the year, you know, sunrise is about uh, is about 5 o'clock, and that's because we have daylight saving. But if otherwise, it will be 4 o'clock. Um, but we otherwise, myself and Dira Lalita, we always, we definitely always try to be up before Brahma Mahuta. And uh, that's the first thing because Prabhupada wanted it, all his, you know, uh, disciples and uh, to, to, to rise early in the morning. Yeah. And that means rise before Brahma Mahuta. So that's what we do. And we get up by three or four in the morning. And then we, uh, I just, uh, you know, um, chant Hare Krishna and I chant my japa. I, um, do some exercise. We, uh, I, I think about what we're going to prepare for breakfast, and I prepare it. 
I also, we have Bhagavatam class every morning, uh, seven days a week. We're studying the fifth canto at the moment. The um, wonderful, wonderful. Just between you and, and myself. And that's right. just us too. And, um, and that's just wonderful. That's the, that's definitely Dira Lilita's highlight of the day. It's also my highlight reading. Wonderful. We're reading this. We're reading the residents of uh, what are we reading, Dira Lilita? Residents. Prayers of the residents of Jampu. Prayers of the residents of Prayers of Prahlad Maharaj. Wonderful. Namo Bhagavati Narasimhaya Namaste Jastejasiya Viravira Bhava Vajranaka. Wonderful verses. Uh, so we're studying the Bhagavatam. It's the highlight of our day. And yep. then we take breakfast. And nine o'clock, and then we do what we have, whatever we have to do. My my wife's studying at the moment, doing an online course. Um, there's various gardening duties. There's correspondence. There's cleaning. There's and then later on, a little bit later on, we I worship the Shalagrams and the Govardhan Shila and look after Tulsi. We're growing nice Tulsi plants, and um, um, and and a, a thousand other things. Wonderful. Very and nice. then evening, and then evening Bhagavad Gita class. And, and oh, okay. That's that's definitely Srila Prabhupada's program. Srimad Bhagavatam in the morning. Bhagavad trying to keep it evening. trying to keep it keep it real, yes. Very nice. Prabhupada said it's the Iskon sandwich. Right. The, program, the evening program and what whatever your service is is the filling. Mm. Okay. So that's, that's our life. Right. Hare Krishna Prabhu, my base is all goes to Prabhupada. Is it true when Prabhupada said that raw diet is the best diet? No, here's another one. Um <laughs> he told I tell you the backstory to this is that Nanda Kumar, Prabhupada's servant, was right into, he was very much into, he was into Hatha Yoga, raw food diet. He kept himself very fit and very healthy, and he still does to this very day. He tells this story, and he tells it with a, with a proviso. He said that Prabhupada was encouraging me to, he said that, he said that, yes, actually, Raw food is the best, according to Nandakumar. He said to Nandakumar, raw food is the best, but I have not introduced this into our society because uh, whatever the rest of the right. is, I remember. We've been I, attacked with raw food, you know. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much to, of that story to, to, to take on board. Right. We never saw Prabhupada eat raw food. They, they gave Prabhupada type of raw salads and things like that after his stroke in 1960, whatever it was, 69. Mm. And he called the devotees into his room and he said, I want to speak to the starvation committee. <laughs> and he, he chastised them for giving him all this stuff. He said, well, I, I'm not eating this. I want regular prasadam, dal, rice, chapatis. Wow. No starvation food. Wow. So, you know, I don't know how much of that story, with all due respect to Nanda Kumar, can, we can apply but he did say that if devotees want to eat raw food and it's good for their health and it's good for their lifestyle, then no, no harm. Yeah. I don't I, think we, we can't legislate you know, the whole change of lifestyle yeah. from that one comment. I know I told you to, we're going to cap it at two hours, but it's been a past. Are you okay to stay on longer? Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, I, hope, I hope you don't mind. No, no, I don't mind. I'm having a great time. There's a lot of questions coming in. We've created a, 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 a transcendental monster here. Yeah. <laughs> I love his invention of strawberry malpura with yogurt sauce. That's not a question, but is that did you create that? Um, no, that recipe was created by Vishnu Janaswami. Wow! Amazing. And he used to cook it. He used to cook it on the Radha Damodar traveling Sankirtan buses, and they made so many devotees from that recipe. Really? 
And, That's amazing. And, you know, there's a picture, there's a photograph I just saw the other day online. There's a huge, there's a pot. There's a picture of Vishnu Janaswami. He's got a, sp a slotted spoon, and you can see some ghee dripping out from it. There's this big pot. Yeah. And that pot is full of ghee, and he's making <laughs> strawberry malpuras fried in ghee, which is the only way to make malpuras. You can't cook them in, in anything else except ghee. And then lots of yogurt and fresh strawberries, and people will be lining up to join the bus party after eating those things. You know, right. like limited quantities of strawberry malpura. So that strawberry malpura was already around by the time I compiled the cookbook. It had become part of ISKCON kitchens everywhere. But it, yeah. it came from Vishnu Janaswami. What? Very nice. Okay, here's another one. I love your books. Long ago, I used to watch your videotapes. I cook in a temple for 15 years. I'm a vegan now just because you learned so much about cow abuse and contamination, dairy industry. I'm definitely missing ghee. Sad reality, isn't it? What do you think Shlebropod would say about it today? Veganism. Veganism. Right. <laughs> oh, this, this was the part of our conversation that I was dreading. But <laughs> I was just, oh my God, me too. I was like, should I ask him about it? I don't know. In my mind, I was like, no, maybe I should stay away from that. Anyway, we're here now. You know, I've, 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 I've lost a few friends over this issue, but uh, wow. you know, like, look, for instance, I've got a, I've got a devoted friend, a very good friend. He's bringing up his children. He's actually got one boy. He's bringing up his son as a vegan, and he said, I, "My son has never taken any dairy products in his life. He's never drank milk, and he's never going to, as long as I'm, as long as I can arrange, you know, decide for him." Right. And I thought to myself, well, look, you know, I respect, I respect this devotee and I respect that he makes thoughtful decisions. But I'm thinking, you know, this is not part of Prabhupada's instructions about drinking milk. Now, okay, now there's, there's a whole lot of discussion about what things, there's an acharya. The acharya can change things according to time, place and circumstance. Some things are carved in stone. We always chant Hare Krishna, but then Prabhupada established certain standards. Um, you know, like the Brahmachrinis moving in the temple, which was never done before, and other standards. So people are saying, well, now now this is another stage of our development in Iniscon. Yeah. You know, veganism is, is, is something which has to be applied. I have many respected elder god brothers who are practically vegans, yeah. Uh, yeah. more or less. And, you know, it's not a small thing. And, but, you know, the, the, the thing with vegan diet is, that Prabhupada never actually refrained from using commercial dairy products any time that he was with us. And he knew in America at the time that milk was contaminated with cod liver oil. Mm. Now, you know what mm. cod liver oil is? It's oil extracted from the liver of cods. Fish. Right? Atlantic fish. Yeah. Cod liver oil. That's certainly not a very nice thing to consume. Not only consume, but offer to the deity. Prabhupada knew that the milk had cod liver oil. But he's he's uh, he was uh, he wanted to establish, you know, a society based on cow protection, and his instructions have always been that we should utilize the gifts of mother cow, and whenever dairy products were available, uh, we should offer them to Krishna. And there's no alternatives to using milk, and all this stuff is practically written word for word in Prabhupada's books because it develops higher brain substance so that we can understand spiritual life. Okay. And he knew that the, the dairy industry in America was no more contaminated than it is now, more or less. And he knew, but he said, because that's all the dairy 
that's all the milk that's available, then therefore, yes, offer it to Krishna. Because it's too important, it's too important not to offer milk to Krishna. Prabhupada was pragmatic, he was practical. And his terminology in this case would be to make use of a bad bargain. The bad bargain is that you've got milk which is contaminated. And in this case today, people are arguing that, yes, the meat industry is cruel. Yes, cows are being slaughtered. Yes, that was going on in the 70s. Prabhupada knew it and nothing's changed in that regards. Um, Prabhupada said that we should take gold from a filthy place or we should, um, we should take nectar from a pot of poison. This is quoting Chanakya Pandit. These are very practical um, uh, axioms. Yeah. yeah. So even though something's contaminated, it's so important, like in the example of gold, gold is so valuable, even if it's in a pot of stool or in a urinal, you just take it out and you wash it and you use it. So similarly, milk is coming, is not, you know, modern dairy is not up to standard. But, but if you can't get ahimsa milk, and uh, if you if you if we still haven't got it together in Iskand to have many many farms with lots and lots of wonderful cows that are being providing unlimited milk, which is yeah. very unfortunate, then yeah. you may have to offer you know shop bought milk to the deity. You can't offer vegan milk sweets. I mean, there's some temples. I mean, don't get me started, but you know, there's some temples <laughs> where they offer vegan sweets to Krishna. Krishna was a cat is a cowherd boy, not a soybean farmer. <laughs> you know, so. It's really, it's really, yeah. Anyway, it's a huge subject. But yes, in answer to that specific question, Prabhupada, I don't think. But then, of course, you know, I, I, I have got brothers who are senior to myself, very well respected, wonderful devotees who would give you some very solid arguments to the opposite. Yes, exactly. Uh, so you know, and they do. And so, what can I say? But anyway, my, this, yeah. my my opinion is, right. I mean, I offer milk to the deities, and I buy organic milk. Yeah. And 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 the, we just found a source that has organic, uh, uh, unpasteurized, unhomogenized milk, like raw milk, raw milk, and we can get that here too. And um, I, as much as I can, I use that and offer that to Krishna. Very That's nice. the best I can do at this point. And the people that look after the cows, they're nice people, and they 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 love cows. And what can you do? You have to be practical. That's the bottom line. And yeah. some people, yeah. you know, have a different opinion, but that's you know, you're asking my opinion, and that's my opinion. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, around here, we get milk from Gita Nagri. Uh, three hours away is our Gita Nagri farm, and they they actually have a great organized way of giving half gallon milks and selling it to all the devotees, and all the devotees get it. So if you're around this area, then that's what you can do. But thank you for that. Uh, let's move on. In your opinion, how should Iskon Sunday feast cooking change to be more healthier or pal palatable, or or is this not an issue? I know we touched on this. Yeah, we touched on it. Look, and every every temple's different. There may be some temples out there that have got really high standards. There are, but not as high as they were in the 70s. In the 70s, it was spectacular. Now, it's the Sunday feast has been, in some places, has been minimized. I know there's some places where they try to revive the whole Sunday feast thing to make it a wonderful, wonderful event with a spectacular feast. Mm. Um, there's a lot of work to be done still. Right. Okay uh okay here oh uh this is another controversial thing grains on festivals mm. uh janmashtami the day uh, uh, there's a there's a grain feast and then there's a non-grain feast or is that what they're talking about no is it is, is yeah, the next day like, yeah 
like in the old days for Gopanima, we used to cook a whole big feast of grains and offer it and take prasadam. Right. On Janmashtami, at midnight, I mean, on Janmashtami, when you would eat that in the night, you would eat a grain feast. Well, we did. And we were in Australia and sometimes we just got, you know, we were just not up to, up to date with all the different changes of rules and things. I mean, Prabhupada, in the early days, the devotees were looking forward to this huge feast at midnight because they'd been fasting all day. You know the story. And then at midnight, Prabhupada cut up an apple. And 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 because Prabhupada wanted us that we would fast completely, but right. then he he realized that this is not going to be possible. But by the time I was cooking feasts and everything, and I cooked many Gopanimas and Janmashtamis and Ram Navamis and Radhastamis, and and every year, you know, this argument comes up. You know, should we be having a grain feast and non-grain feast? Some devotees come to Gopanima feast and they're horrified. What are you doing? You're serving grains. This is supposed to be an Akadasi feast. Right. And then the answer comes back, well, this is how we used to do it. And this is when Prabhupada was with us, this is how we used to do it. Yeah. So it goes round and around and around and around. And it's a huge subject that is too big for tonight's conversation. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think that's the, that's the end of the questions here. Uh, Abai Kurana, we already discussed this. What about following a Kaddish engine, Mashri Gorpani? We just discussed that grains on on okay well well um let's have a concluding thought i just wanted to um ask you a little bit about um the next generation of cooks like if someone wants to be a cook or someone is interested in it what do you recommend for them to do well i recommend that they learn how to cook by following the footsteps of the previous acharyas get you know jamuna's cookbook get my cookbooks and there's other devotees that have written nice cookbooks um and just cook them and learn how to cook those not because they are basically recipes that Prabhupada was was cooked and Prabhupada yeah. showed us how to cook um you can't really i mean this is parampara um yeah. i would say it like people ask me, how do I become a good cook? I say, just, just follow recipes. That's what recipe books are for. Yeah. And these recipes have been distilled and passed down from, I mean, some of the recipes in my books were the original recipes that Prabhupada gave, you know, to various devotees. And, and some of those recipes actually Prabhupada cooked himself. Right. And so you can't have, you can't get any more parampara than that. Mm. So just like we, you know, we pass down spiritual knowledge from, from guru to disciple. So, I mean, I'm not sort of like glorifying myself, but I spent years writing these books and Jamuna spent many more years writing her books. Just, there's thousands of recipes, literally. There's 600 recipes in her books. I've got like 1,200 recipes or something. You know, there's like 2,000 recipes that you can cook. So, I mean, how many more recipes do you need? Uh, if you want to be a good cook, just start off by becoming an expert at, at following recipes that have been well loved over the decades. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, I think that's my humble advice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Kumar Prabhu, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, fantastic conversation. I had such a great time. I'm on a roll here, but um... <laughs> you're on a roll here. If everyone wants, if anyone wants to get in contact with Kumar Prabhu, here's his email address kurmadas at gmail.com. Please get in touch with him. He's he's also active on Facebook. I love your posts about about your growing different things and your deities and and all the things you're doing there in Ireland. It's it's really wonderful. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's not much more I can say. I'm just uh, totally uh, you know, elated that we had such an amazing, uh, informative, entertaining conversation. Thank you again so much. Namarasapu, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. So uh, Prabhu, stay on a little bit longer. Um, I'm gonna turn off the live, but uh, that's episode 43 uh, with Kurma Prabhu. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you.